welcome to Universally Speaking, the Red Hot Chili Peppers podcast. My name is Ben Townsend from bentownsendmusic.net and I'm joined as always by Sam Townsend from samtownsendmusic.td and we are joined this episode by Simon Harper. Good evening, gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Pleasure to be here. How wonderful to have you join us, Mr. Simon Harper, Red Hot Chili Peppers fan interviewer extraordinaire and dare I say it podcast fan absolutely regular listener first time visitor fantastic you can stay <laughs> <laughs> so uh, dot td that yes. strikes me have, as a, have a go at that let's see how you get on that strikes me as one that might not have uh, the td might have, not have much relevance to the letters involved oh, with the country geographical who, master who knows simon i will allow you to have a little stab but i think in the intervening time since we started trying to record this episode i've had a stroke of genius ah well i was going to say trinidad that is a good guess and an understandable guess, but it is an incorrect guess. Yes, the only one guess. I've been harbouring, so now I'm reasons. stuck. Hmm. Okay. Well, it's a TED, isn't it? It is, yes. It, do you want a, a little clue? I think I, you can, but I think I'm going to go Fine. my own way here. Have a guess, I, have I a guess. I think I understand what you've been doing here, okay. I think it might be a, a repeat. It, it may be. I've had a lot of hmm. issues with uh, a lot of my website, so I have had to... Revisit some of them. Mm. I think this uh, this particular website or domain where you set up your new business. Absolutely. I think it might be right in the middle of a mythical place, if I if I may. Come on, spit it out. Is it Chad? <laughs> oh, he's got it. Ah, <laughs> oh, well done, Chad. Thank you. So we might as well start with Chad. Have both of you seen the uh, Drumio video of him? Drumming to 30 seconds to Mars? Yes. Well done him. That's the most... Oh, what, what a drummer. Well drum. done him. I'm surprised he got through it. Well, I was initially surprised. Goosebumped on first mm. listen, by the mm. way, and I, I goosebump oh, up um, very rarely. Californication. Californication. Um, just incredible. And to the layman, yeah, it looks great, but it's only when you watch other drummers reacting to it and stuff. Um, that you realise just how how skillful he is, and he is now officially a god tier drummer. Yeah, so that's good. And you news. can tell how he thinks laterally about things as well, the way that it changed, and that's what other drummers respect because you can mm. see, oh, I see why you're thinking that, but you're going that way. You know, it's, he's a very smart yeah. guy. Apparently, he eats drums for breakfast. He, he does. Yes, it? essentially, does back in the day, it was uh, steak, cigarettes, and drums, as we. We may have discussed before, and we've never we've never been able to confirm that with him. Nor did I. However, Simon, <laughs> you you probably have. So, <laughs> can I just ask Sam before we go any further? You, you, you say he's officially god tier. Yes. Who does those rankings? It was someone on a YouTube video. Oh, fine. <laughs> uh, no, not on the video, but in the comments section. <laughs> yeah. So it's the comment section so of a the YouTube video. The comment section of an unidentified YouTube video. I'm sure he's absolutely thrilled. But it's pretty official. I knew that I was, I knew, well, I knew I was a Chili's fan already, but I knew things had gone even deeper when I found myself watching reaction videos to Chad playing uh, the 30 Seconds to Mars yeah. song. And quoting comments, comments on the podcast to a man who has spoken to Chad. Yeah, this is this is now a full circle. So let's get into. Mr. Simon Harper, 
who are you and how have you come to the point in your career that you interview the Red Hot Chili Peppers? Ah, well, so I am uh, the founder of Clash magazine and formerly its editor-in-chief. And um, I've been a Chili Peppers fan for now, uh, let me do the quick sums, about 33 years. So being my favourite band, uh, having owned and ran a magazine, I would spend a long time chasing the people that I wanted to speak to and the Chili's were always high on that list. And I'm very fortunate to say that we crossed paths a few times. So I'd, I'd like to ask a question about the path that, that, that your life took. How does, how does somebody get into music journalism for a start? Did you just love music when you were growing up and you thought, I'd like, there's something I'd like to write about? Yeah, you're a Chili's fan, so you're hearing like 33 years ago, where are we now? 2023, so 33 years ago was what, Blood Sugar-ish? I guess so. Yes. Talk me through that 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 journey to get into music journalism in the first place. Uh, well, what you asked about uh, having a, a passion for music and magazines—that was certainly true. But I'm the wrong person to ask because I never studied music journalism, and in fact, kind of stumbled into it by accident. Uh, simple twist of fate, as Bob Dylan once said. Um, so basically, the story behind Clash was that. Um, well, I studied graphic design at college and there's a guy I met there who got a job at a, a web design company um, and I got, I went to go and work with him uh, in, the, in the graphic design department and uh, while we were there we decided to create our own little um, entertainment guide, sort of free gig guide, local magazine if you will and um, we left that company, took the magazine with us, and we developed it from being a local magazine to sort of like a, an East Coast Scotland magazine to being a, a, a national Scottish magazine to eventually being a full national magazine uh, over the course of about three years. But then it got to the point where we had to rebrand and relaunch. So we launched Clash in 2004, and by that time it was a, a paid, on-the-shelf uh, international title. So we basically spent a few years at developing our product, uh, and then and uh, and then relaunched in two thousand and four. And I was basically the editor in chief, because or the editor, because <laughs> I was the one that loved music and writing the most. Uh, and I never really um, aspired to be a music journalist. It's just that I was brought up reading music magazines exclusively and listened to a shit ton of music, basically. So yeah, it was a happy accident. It's a happy accident, fueled by quite a lot of dedication, I imagine, because it's no small thing to say, this is what we're going to try and do, and to turn something into a, like you said, like a, something that's on the shelves, yeah. nationally, but known around the world. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, man. I mean, it was dedicated. I mean, we started at, uh, we were all pretty young. We probably would have been about uh, 22 when we started doing it. Clash launched, and I was probably about 22. 25. So we definitely spent a couple of years really building up from grassroots and really making all the mistakes you could possibly make in publishing, but learning as we went along. So by the time that Clash came along, I know it was certainly over the first couple of years of Clash, it was very much just, you know, seat of your pants kind of thing. But yeah, working all hours and dedicated and, and um, uh, yeah, changed my life. So um, I got to achieve a lot of ambitions. Uh, I got to meet a lot of great people, got to travel the world, and um, 
yeah, it's led to, it's led me to where I am now. But bringing it full circle, talking, the talking reason to us, yeah, well, exactly. But the reason I'm talking to you <laughs> is because I love the red hot chili peppers so much, and they are the ones singularly responsible for setting me on the path that leads us to here right now. Yes, exactly that. So, in terms of the chilies, uh, we've got an interview that we're going to talk about later on from Anthony in 2004. Was that the first time you'd interviewed a member of the band, yeah. or had you had you spoken to them before that? No, that was the first time, and and I was very green at the time, very new to it, and it was a very overwhelming thing. So I'd basically been into them. I I, I discovered the Chilies. Um, so I started high school in 1990, and I met this guy there by the name of David Kenneser. And uh, he played guitar and I played drums and we just kind of gravitated towards each other. Uh, and it got to the point where we'd go to each other's houses after school and I'd be plying him with music to listen to. I was really into like the Stone Roses and the Beatles. Uh, and he was trying to play me this album, which had like this half naked woman on the front cover. And it was very heavy, bombastic music. And I was very much more into the kind of melodic uh, side of things. So it was, it was quite, uh, heavy to my ears and he also had this uh, VHS uh, tape of psychedelic sex funk that he would like play me and I would just ah, be like so and I was just like not that I wasn't interested but I was like well I don't know these guys I don't know this music but every time he came at my house he'd be bringing this video and it'd be like and I got to enjoy I loved the backstage stuff you know the flea putting the, the glue in his thumb mm. uh, but the songs mm. I still didn't know but eventually I kind of um got a copy of that album which was Mother's Milk listened to it and liked it but it was just like it was one of many albums that I would listen to at that time um, like I said Stone Roses were big uh, R.A.M. When Did Out of Time come out about about that 91 um, but then when, when Blood Sugar dropped I mean the impact of that was immediate and profound man I mean it, that that changed my life it was it was just striking when it came out it was just so obvious that it was it was meant to be, and so I just I just devoured every morsel of whatever kind of chili pepper stuff I could get, which was pretty difficult at the time because you couldn't get arrested here. You couldn't really read about the chilies anywhere. Um, they wouldn't be. They'd sometimes be an NME and Melody Maker, very sort of rarely, but that was certainly laterally, like you know, '92 after Under the Bridge. But like, you know, some people talk about like in their teenage years having like an identity crisis, trying to work out who they were. For me, it was like being such a big fan of the chili peppers i mean my bedroom was covered in posters and every cut out clippings from magazines so for me to get those clippings i was having to buy magazines like uh kerrang raw uh metal hammer terrorizer all these kind of magazines and so my identity crisis was like do i like heavy metal <laughs> am i a heavy metal fan because this is what magazines are in but it wasn't until like '92 mm. when all the, like they were on the cover of the Face, which is still one of my favourite covers of all time. Um, Anthony and Flea sort of embracing, um, shot by Corinne Day, uh, and then they were on the cover of Spin and Rolling Stones. So things kind of changed. So it was quite difficult to be a Chili's fan before they broke through because you know trying to collect that stuff was um, was pretty difficult. But yeah, I just I just read every interview, every band that they mentioned. I would go out and buy the album. Obviously, this is before streaming, so you couldn't check stuff out. So, yeah, go and buy the albums. And I remember once it was a guitar magazine, and it had um, 
an illustration of like a, a family tree, like the chilies at the top and down the bottom, all the roots had like different styles of music. So like blues, funk, soul, country, whatever. And then it was kind of all these influences that sprouted to the chilies on top. And I remember just like consciously looking at it going, I'm going to listen to every one of these bands. Uh, and it did, you know. And also the people that they covered as well, you know, Hank Williams, Stevie Wonder, Bob Dylan. For me, it was just a massive like voyage of discovery that has never abated since. So they've got a lot to answer for, basically. Just talking about, um, and you're right, I, I love the points you're making about the bands that you get into, uh, you learn about them and that educates you in music that becomes the broader the, the broader picture and, and becomes more important to you. But I remember talking to Sam uh, last episode about the Suck My Kiss video and the If You Have To Ask video. And I wrote them off, basically. I said, well, this is just them behind the scenes. Mm. This is just them in, mm. in the mansion. And the, um, the If You Have To Ask video is just, oh, this is just them playing live, fairly sloppily cut together to make it look like they're playing it. But actually, in that, in that era that you're talking about, you didn't, you didn't have, um, you know, you, you go in and buy magazines that has those features. You didn't see the band recording the album. You didn't know what John Fashante looked like at that well, point. Well, I think that you came after... You say his name. I think that came after Funky Monks, um, which I had on VHS by that point. Uh, hmm. So I think, I mean, I don't know if I'm remembering it rightly, but it may have just felt like it was recycled material. Um, yeah, So yeah. I'm yeah, not sure about that. It was, and that's why. That's why I, when I in the suck my kiss video, that's why I was saying, "Oh, this is this video. This is no good, unimaginative." But actually, for fans at the time, it's solid gold. Well, this is yeah, the band exactly. in, in and their environment. For fans who've who've got Funky Monks, maybe it's it's not as important. But as a, as a piece of promotion, promotional material, it's priceless at that time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it was it was really hard in 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 those days in the like late eighties, early nineties, and I can remember trawling the internet in even after Californication, maybe, and it's still you know still being really really happy when I found something new that or an interview or something, and that was you know a few years later, tech, technology yeah. had, had advanced, things had got easier, but it still even then wasn't you know like it is now and. There was no no way of sort of keeping up with them day to day or having any idea of what was really going no. on in the band unless you unless you did find, you know That's get it. an interview or something like that. I guess if you're an early adopter of the internet, flea mail was a good flea mail was flea fantastic. Mail was a good thing yeah, to, yeah. To get well, with. but not like you say you don't you don't know about the changes. So you've got to you've got to stay uh, on top of things via like news columns and magazines. So like you know it was only um, uh, a couple of years after I got into them that John left for the first time. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. as a fan in real time, that was like all of a sudden, uh, you know, looking back, I had seen that um, Jack Sherman was there for one album, then Hillel was there for two albums, and then John was there for two albums, and now this new guy, Dave Navarro, is in. So f- for me, it's like you have to accept that that is the Chili Peppers now. You know, you don't know what the kind of the what was going on in the background. You would read about it. Oh, this guy's in the Chilis now. So you just kind of accept. Okay, they go through guitarists. This is the band now. <laughs> so yeah. I will continue to like them. That's just what it does. But yeah, and then the next thing you'd read is this interview with the band. Okay, yeah, Dave's in the band now, and and it's uh, 
So you just, yeah, you roll with the punches, as it were, I suppose. 20, 25, 30 years later, they, uh, well, we've, you know, obviously John's back. Climb in, on to, uh, climb these on to these John, changes have, have <laughs> continued to happen fairly regularly, <laughs> fairly regularly. Sorry, I was going to say, it's like the people who sort of talk about uh, Josh leaving, thinking, you know, oh, John had to come back. But it's not that. It's like when Josh was in the band, that was the band. And so you accept the band. So whatever music they make, that's the Chili Peppers. You know, you don't you don't decry the fact that there's a, it's it's been and gone. It's like that happened, and that was, uh, you know, there's a lot of great things about that time. Great music too. I think one of the things that we'll find when we because we are absolutely we're we're lucky that that Simon has has got some audio. We're going to link in the show notes to interviews that were in um, in Clash magazine that came from some of these. A link to an absolute cracking YouTube video as well. But you'll in see which I raise my eyebrow a lot, very strangely. Somebody said that, <laughs> talking about YouTube comments. I was like, somebody commented saying, what is with this guy's eyebrows? It's like when I'm reading something, I kind of like arch a, an eyebrow, but you just don't realise. And I saw this comment on YouTube and I was like, do I actually do that? That is so mad. Don't do it when I'm talking, just when I'm reading aloud to someone. Strange. Because you've had such a span, of time where you've where you've interviewed the band we're talking 2004 right up to the modern day and unlimited yeah. love there have been changes and there's a lot exactly, of, yeah. there's a lot of talk in in the interviews about uh, about them saying well this is just the way that it is now and we're taking them into into the family people are equals and you come in and we're going to make music and we may do it in different ways with different people especially through the uh, brian danger mouse burton era yeah Go back into Rick Rubin for Unlimited Love. But I mean, I think that's one of the things that was appealing to the band at the time for me as well. You know, they took, uh, I fell under the kind of spell of their philosophy as well. You know, they're a very inclusive band, and that obviously includes themselves. Like, we're, we're going to hear from them later on how much they, once you're in the band, you're in the band, you are a chili pepper. Uh, and I kind of felt like that as a, as a young kid, you know what I mean? Like 12 years old, and these people are espousing brotherly love and, and, telepathic chemistry and all this kind of stuff. You just think, oh man, I want to be in that gang. Do you know what I mean? They weren't, they weren't, they didn't feel impenetrable. They felt like you could, you could uh, be their mate. And I think that's what I love about it now. Even going back to, you know, a snippet from Funky Monks with Fleas um, talking and he's talking about what it means to be a red hot chili pepper. That's exactly, that's exactly the quote. Yeah, it's incredible. They have this, Yes, they're a band like any other band in that they, they make music and they play live shows and all things like that. But they are a, a band of brothers who don't just make the music, they live and breathe and believe in everything that they do. And it, that is something which still rings true today. So it can, you know, with some, with some bands, that can be a kind of um, hook that they use to, to you know, to... to gain fans or encourage people to listen to the music but if it's not true in the way that it is with the chilies over time you know things become clear to people who listen to the music follow the band closely but it is absolutely with them and that is such a special thing that runs alongside the music we are back with simon Harper, interviewer extraordinaire, and we're in the year 2003, 
And uh, Simon, you're going to interview a young man that we like to call the Swan in a very, very special era for all of us, I'm sure. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, this was in the uh, the precursor magazine to Clash. This was uh, when we were still very much finding our feet and generally just blagging like whatever interviews we could get. Um, I was a regular poster on the old um, Chili Peppers forum on the message boards, whoever it was back then. Um, met some great people then, actually. You know, that was that was um, um, sort of the first foray into a wider network of Chili Peppers fans uh, and discovering lots of things that everybody did at that time, you know, links and pictures and interviews and things. Uh, and there was somebody there that I met that had um, an email address for their tour manager, a guy called Louis. Um, so I thought, well, I'll interview them. They were coming to Glasgow. I still lived in Scotland at the time. Uh, and I thought, I'll email them. And I'll say, I'm the editor of this magazine. Can we get an interview? He can only say no. Lo and behold, he replies back, yes, come along to the show. Uh, I think I had tickets for the first night, just in case. I mean, I was going to go along in anyway. So he says, come to the show. So I took along my best mate, a guy called Ian Hogg, and uh, me and him, we drive through to Glasgow. I mean, it's, we, we were on the East Coast in Dundee, so it's a good, like, two-hour drive just to get to Glasgow. Um, we get there, we go backstage, we meet Louis. He's like, guys, sit on this couch here and, um, you know, I'll try and sort this interview out. So we literally sat there just, like, watching, kind of like the first real time I'd ever been, like, backstage at a proper gig, <laughs> just seeing all these people go by, just, like, slack-jawed, like, wow, this is incredible. And then we saw, like, Anthony walking past... We saw Chad walk past, um, we saw fleas zip by on a scooter, and we were like, wow, this is amazing, this is great. Um, and the Mars Volta were supporting, and their, their thing started, and then they finished, and it was like, oh, man, this isn't going to happen. And um, right enough, Louis comes up to us, and he's like, listen, guys, it's, it's, I don't think it's going to happen tonight, but you're welcome to come and stand side of stage, watch the gig, and come back tomorrow night. They were playing two nights in a row. Uh, so, you know, go on to the stage and enjoy the gig. And I said, well, it was actually John's birthday. It was John's birthday. It was March the 6th, 2003. And so we bought him a birthday card and a present. So I was like, can I hang around and see if I see John and give him these presents? And he's like, yeah, by all means. So John must have been watching the Mars Volta. So eventually he comes back and yeah, I just couldn't believe it. Speaking to John Frusciante, it was just like incredible so I says happy birthday John he's just like looks at me like a deer in the headlights he's just like who is this crazy guy giving me a present uh, so I gave him his present went to go and watch the gig from side of stage literally standing next to Flea's bass rig and it was just the most awesome thing ever um, anyway went home that night came back the next night another two hour journey same thing happens sitting on the couch Mars Volta play Mars Volta finish and then Louis comes up to us and he's like, oh, listen, guys, I, I don't think it's going to happen tonight. And at that point, Anthony comes like running up to him, grabs him in a headlock and sort of they start to wander off back backstage. And I thought, oh, man, that's it. It's gone. And then Louis comes back and he says, listen, I've just spoken to Anthony. And he says, come back to his dressing room after the gig um, and you can have a chat then. So... We went to go and watch the show and we were thinking, oh man, I bet it doesn't happen, something's going to go wrong. Went backstage, right enough, midnight, taken into his dressing room, sat down at a couch 
and um, me very nervous and green and very new to the whole thing, just sat down with him uh, and we had a great conversation. I says to him, this is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And he says, why? And I says, because I've got about 13 years worth of questions I've wanted to ask. So the interview was very much like kind of a bit of a broad career overview, but with quite a few like fanboy questions in there. I got to ask him who the little kid was that sings on the Brothers Cup. So that was uh, pretty cool. I think... I think to for anyone listening to this podcast who cares that much about uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, that is a dream come true for everyone listening to that because that is what what a story. Take a punt, take a chance, send an email, see what comes of it. That's uh, that's phenomenal. I mean, that's what we always did, you know. But when when we started class, you know, we were um, a national title, but we were. St- we started the magazine in Scotland, so we very much felt like outsiders anyway. And, and, and having had no kind of schooling in the industry per se, we were just blagging it. So, you know, we'd go through official channels, but it was like we would always aim for the very top. So we'd start at the top mm. in terms of like who we were shooting for. You know, like I was trying to get bloody David Bowie, I was trying to get anybody. And then you compromise down rather than starting at the bottom and taking whoever you'd get sort of thing. Um, so yeah, it was very much like you just you just got to do it. You got to take a chance. So yeah, we ended up doing the interview, and then it was so funny. Uh, we we finished the interview, and as we were walking out, it was in the SECC in Glasgow. We were walking to the car park. Me and uh, my friend Hog, we we didn't speak to each other. Total silence. Walked back to the car in total silence. Got in the car, and you know that um, only fools and horses episode when they become millionaires. And they celebrate in the car and the car's shaking. Like we walked back to the car in complete silence, sat down, just looked at each other and just started screaming, going, yeah, I can't believe we just did that. Uh, and it was and it was awesome. Um, so the thing about this recording is I was recording it on a, an old school dictaphone, like a cassette dictaphone. So God knows where the cassette is. It's filmed somewhere in my parents' house. But um, so it was recorded on a pretty crappy quality dictaphone. And then a friend of mine um, converted it to MP3 and burnt it onto a CD. And that was, you know, uh, 20 years ago. So the quality of this recording is very much 2003 TDK cassette to MP3. <laughs> it's not the best recording. No, it's not. But that in itself is indicative of your situation. You know, as you say, just learning as you go, getting that getting that dictaphone recording and and going for it yeah because i had no I idea what was going to come after that you know i had no idea that my yeah. career was going to be uh forthcoming and that our path would cross again so i was just using the opportunity to you know let's get a great interview and it was a really good interview i mean it was mm. it was probably about 45 minutes maybe maybe it was half an hour at one point flea came into the dressing room and he'd seen us sitting backstage and he's obviously like thinking these guys are just blaggers um and anyway he comes in and and anthony's like hey do you want to come in and these guys got a magazine so then he picks up the magazine and flea's looking at it realizes that we're not chancers that we're actually there to do a job and he starts asking me about the magazine or you know when we set it up and and genuinely being interested in it so it was like cool like this is you know i'm here to do a job and and they appreciate it so we're gonna go now Uh, we're gonna we're gonna listen to that first interview anthony keyless the swan 
in 2003. Let's, let's check that out. For this interview, my recorder was sitting on the arm of Anthony's chair to best capture him, so my questions are quieter in the mix. My first question to him was, in considering the progress the group had made from being young punks on the streets of LA to selling out arenas around the world, how did he feel knowing that he was changing lives and affecting people in such a profound way? shocking feeling. You know, some bands go from zero to a hundred overnight with their first record. And I think that's a harder adjustment to make you know, going from a, a garage to an arena. And when Big fell swoop, ooh, for us it was our first three records. We were having so much fun and touring in relative obscurity. But at the same time, not knowing that there was this sort of arena existence as an option. We just were playing clubs and we thought that that was the best that life would ever get. We were so satisfied. It was a great feeling to just travel around and play clubs and be loved and to rock people out in you know, small and faraway places. And then, uh, you know, over time, suddenly, wherever we go, there's a much bigger audience. I went on to ask about the musical journey they'd been on as the band stylistically developed with new and evolving tastes, citing John's then recent vocal appreciation for Yes. I asked Anthony, as you grow, what do you look for in music? Well, John has such an insatiable appetite for new music that eventually he will have been influenced by every form of music ever invented. It's like he kind of quenches this, you know, this need for something new and then he moves on to something else because he's got to explore new territory. And by proxy, we all kind of like listen. He's the DJ backstage, so we're always listening to what he's into at that moment. But, <clears throat> you know, our influences are musical, but they're also just emotional and comical. Just 
After John Frusciante popped up in the conversation, I had to ask Anthony, was it true that he hadn't spoken to John after he first left the band? And then when he rejoined in 1999, what was it like for them starting a new relationship, considering what had just gone before? It was pretty weird. I didn't talk to him the whole time he was in the band, except for a couple of times I ran into him. And it was always awkward and uncomfortable. <clears throat> and I knew there was tons of animosity between us. At least I felt tons toward him. And I could only imagine from the things I heard and the way he acted towards me that he was feeling that same kind of negative animosity towards me. But at the same time, I still loved him a lot. And as pissed off as I was and as much as I kind of hated him sometimes, I loved him much more. You know, that kind of weird brotherly thing where you just want to like smack him in the face, but finally kind of resurfaced and uh, it became clear that he was interested in playing with us again. We got together and we had both been through so much, so much pain and hard times that when we saw each other it was like, you know what, nothing else matters. We love each other and then all of that, that hatred and animosity just kind of didn't mean anything anymore. It lost all of its power. So coming out of that fabulous interview in 2003, talking to The Swan, Simon, when you are, this was early days, but you're asking some, some, some questions there that kind of walk the line. Now, where do you, at that stage, I guess you were just taking a chance, but what do you know what's acceptable to ask and what's not to ask? And has that changed over the time that you've been talking to various musicians, various bands? They've improved. I mean, uh, when I listen to my old interviews, it's just uh, quite generic questions. But I grew up, uh, like I said earlier on, uh, devouring music magazines. When we set up Clash, I wanted it to look like Dazed magazine, like a very stylish magazine. I wanted it to sort of cover the bands that NME covered, so very contemporary artists. But I wanted to write about them in the way that Mojo wrote about them, because those are the magazines that I read. So, you know, Mojo, very in-depth, penetrating uh, material. That's what I aspired to do. So I wanted my writing to be like that. My writing got better uh, as well, because at the early days, it was all just like Q&As. I would just print the question and the answer. But then as I got sort of more into, into, the, into the role and comfortable with my sort of talents, I would just start writing them into like embedded features, if you know what I mean. Um, that got better. But uh, knowing what questions to write, to ask, um, like I said, I mean, I, I can't remember exactly, probably like three A4 sheets of questions scrawled in messy handwriting. I mean, I don't know how many it was, but it was a lot. And then I just had to work out um, the best way to do it. The best interviews are just really good conversations. In fact, it's a funny thing. When we were driving through, my mate Hogg says to me, like, I'm going to be sitting there, like, what do I say? And I said the same thing to him. It's like, an interview is just a conversation, man. Just dive in at any point. And he's like, well, what should I say? And I was like, well, I think they play golf. You play golf. Just 
bring up golf at some point. So there was this great point we were in the interview, and uh, so uh, I'm trying to think. There's two couches. Me and Hogg are opposite each other, and then Anthony's to like my left. So he's looking at me, and we're having this chat, and then there's this like natural lull in the conversation, and Hogg says, uh, "So um, you guys like to play golf?" And Anthony just like visibly turns around to him and says, "No, I don't play golf." And Hog's face is just crumples <laughs> like, oh shit! <laughs> it was so funny. But yeah, you got to know uh, a good conversation flows naturally. So the questions you want to ask are um, have to be natural. And I I built my reputation on um, uh, artists knowing that they'd be comfortable with me. So I was never going to ask controversial questions. You know, I was never going to ask somebody. You know, I'm not going to suddenly launch into questions about heroin with Anthony Keaton. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's just so stupid. Mm. No one wants to know about that. And and if he wanted to speak about it, he'd bring it up. All artists do. If they, like, PRs would sometimes say to you, don't bring this up. And then you go in an interview and you get three questions in and then they'd, they would bring it up. So once they open that box, it's, it's there to be explored. But, you know, I was never that person to go chasing uh, those rabbits, as it were. Uh, so my line of questioning has always been like, just get the best story out of people and make them very comfortable to want to talk to you. You start off, you start off any conversations starting with, you know, small talk, and then you start talking about the new album or whatever it is they want to promote. And then you get to the stuff that is the really juicy stuff, like the stuff that you want to know or the stuff that's going to make a good story. And at the end, that's when you can get a bit fruity. So interview two, we're in 2009 the year of 2009 and Simon you were interviewing Chad the Myth Smith what's it all about yeah well this one was a slightly less exciting story than the last one this was just um a phone interview uh he was releasing the uh Bombastic Meat Bats debut album and so uh, I got him on the phone for, uh, it was like a, a regular feature we have in the magazine. And so it was just a quick one. And, and it's funny because when, when I was talking to you about arranging these interviews, I was thinking, well, I probably won't include this one because I think it was all sort of stuff pertaining to his growth as a musician. And I didn't actually think there was that much reference to Chili's. Um, and only when it went, went, it's only when I went back and reread it or re-listened to it first, I was like, ah, oh, it's actually quite a good bit about the chilies in there. Um, but the funny thing about this interview was, and I never actually realised this until recently, so I interviewed him, it must have been November 2009 or October, it was late 2009. And in the interview, he says, he, he talks about um, how the, um, how he sort of developed uh, or, or how his, his playing sort of changed with the band and, he says, he says in the interview, we just started rehearsing again. We just started writing songs again. So this is late 2009. Now, I never knew this. Nobody knew this. But John had mm. left in July. So it never occurred to me to ask, mm. you, know, <laughs> uh, you know, is everyone okay? Is everyone still there? Is the band still intact? So when he says to me, we've just started rehearsing again, unbeknownst to me and the rest of the world, it was with Josh. Mm. Um because they didn't announce it publicly till I think it was December 2009. So had I known, I would have been able to say, so tell us, what about this new kid, Josh? Oh, or man. what happened with John, you know? So it was, the timing of it was, I just, I just had no idea. I guess that was a slip from Chad, really. Had you tried to explore it further or ask questions about 
potentially like John playing or what was going on with the band, the sound maybe, he yeah. would have had to have just shut up shop and moved up. Well, he did right at the very end before he hung up. Um, he he'd mentioned in the interview something about like um, um, uh, Flea listening to electronic music mm. and 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 um, asking Chad to listen to some stuff to sort of inspire him and right at the very end that said oh you mentioned you're rehearsing again uh might there be kind of an electronic influence in the new stuff and he's like ah oh, not yet no but you know whenever so he kind of went into it a little bit and i think i remember we did a news story at the time sort of saying oh chiles are working on new material so that was a scoop in itself mm. but man we could have been the first to find out that john Fashanti wasn't mm. in the band anymore but it wasn't to be um so yeah it was just a phone interview our office was in soho at the time uh in london uh, in fact, our office, you know the um, the cover of Oasis, What's the Story, Morning Glory? Mm. As you're looking at it, our office is on the right-hand side, so the corner of Berwick Street and Darbley Street. So in this interview, it was a, a, a digital dictaphone nonetheless, but a dictaphone uh, recording a speakerphone. So you can hear the sound in the room, you can hear phones going off in the room next door, you can hear cars outside. It was like the busiest uh, junction in Soho um, or Crossroads, but uh, it was... Uh, you can hear the the ambiance in this recording, but uh, yeah, that was the um, that was the story of that one. Not too exciting, but this was. Uh, I think I explained at the start of this recording what the interview is and uh, and and where we go from there. Let's get into it. So the concept of this interview was gleaming life lessons from a musician, drawing from their own personal experiences to pass on advice to anyone wishing to follow in their footsteps. When my conversation with Chad began, I asked him about his audition for the Red Hot Chili Peppers in 1988. Was that his first audition for a band, I asked, and what's the best thing to do in those circumstances? Um, no, I had auditioned for other groups before, and I think the, the best thing to do is uh, be yourself and... Um, You know, it, it's be, be as prepared as you can. Sometimes it's difficult because you don't know what's expected and all auditions are different. But, um, you know, if it's a band that has music that, you know, recorded or they have records, obviously go out and get their records and listen to them. And, and uh, so you could, you know, have you guys could play something uh, that everybody's familiar with. But really just, um, you know, be on time yeah <laughs> and uh just be confident but don't don't be cocky and um you know just just be like i said just be yourself and try to make it fun you know i mean so people like are enjoying themselves they're having fun that's going to give them a good feeling sure and um yeah make sure your equipment's together whatever you're playing if it's a guitar or your amp or your drums or you know, you don't want to be there and your stuff's not working or, um, yeah, you know, the Chili Peppers, I wasn't that familiar so long ago, I'm trying to think, but it was like 20 years ago, 21 years ago, but I wasn't that familiar with the Chili Peppers and, and so I, I, I literally bought, um, it's a, at the time there was an EP out called the Abbey Road EP mm-hmm. and, uh, had like five songs on it, four or five songs. And I listened to that in the car on the way to the audition. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
and literally sat in the parking lot. Like it was a little bit early. He sat in the parking lot to hear it, to finish it. And uh, so when we went in and said, oh, yeah, I can play, you know, Funky Crime or, you know, Fight Like a Brave or whatever, you know, was on there. And, and they were like, oh, good. You know, so it's always good to try to be as familiar with the artists as you, as you can, if that's. And if, yeah. and if you're not, just, just wing it. If you're not, just <laughs> wing it, brother. <laughs> and, uh, and just be, you know, like I said, don't, you know, don't. Don't be cocky, you know, you should be confident because everybody wants a confident, certainly in a drummer situation. Yeah. Um, you know, but don't come in with an attitude like, you know, I'm a man, you sure you're lucky I'm playing over here. <laughs> obviously, that wouldn't work. So, yeah, that's it. Now, you obviously, I mean, it's, uh, you know, uh, people auditioning nowadays <clears throat> might, or, you know, in any scenario, might be uh, like a new unsigned band, but you, you're obviously joining an established band. You certainly weren't as famous as, as they are now, um, but you're still, you know, they had, a, they had a fan base and stuff. I mean, did you have to cater for, uh, change your style to, uh, to join that band, or did you kind of help transform them to sort of fit your sound? Um... A little bit of both, you know, it was like, um, I'm, I come more from a rock background and, uh, not sure that the other guys are as, are as, uh, are as, you know, sort of, in more of a traditional rock sense. And, in like, in all the, like, English, great English rock bands of the late 60s and early 70s, that's what I grew up on. Deep Purples and the Humble Pies and the Zeppelins and the Who and, you know, Cream and, Queen and bands like that. So, yeah. um, you know, I did. I played in a band previously that we played some funk. You know, we played stuff that influenced by like Tower of Power and James Brown. And so I kind of knew where they were coming from, but um, I really um, I had to. I didn't. I wouldn't say I changed my style. I, I wanted. I tried to play what was right for the music. Yeah. And certainly, I sort of copped like for the older songs. I sort of copped with what what the other drummers were doing. But for the new stuff that we were writing, I just tried to like you know use listen and and use my ears and and just think what was the right thing to play and and um, you know I got some definitely some encouragement from. From, uh, I remember Anthony gave me a um, a tape at the time, <laughs> like a cassette tape of the Meters, and he was like, you know, yeah, I, I get you get our rock thing, but this is another aspect of what we do that I'm not sure that you're, you know, up to speed on yet. Check this out. And I was, I knew of the Meters, but I wasn't, I didn't like really dig into it, and do my homework on it. And I remember, you know, listening to songs like Sissy Strut and. and um, you know, there was there. He gave me a tape of the meters. I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. And and that was uh, that was eye-opening to me. And just like now, we're writing new songs. And you know, Flea's been playing with with like Tom York and some other people. And he's he's like really into kind of electronic beats and stuff. And he gave me this this disc of like these electronic beats. He goes, just check this out and like do your own thing. But I want you to be influenced by this, you know, a little bit more. Yeah. And so. It's always good to, to open up to new stuff, you know, and, and um, you know, but I, I think my, my playing has kind of evolved, you know, over the years, but for, for I definitely bring the, a more rock element 
than I think the band had previously before. Yeah. So coming out of Chad Smith, 2009, that that phone interview, you talk about the ambiance. I mean, it's there, but also I was thinking that all you need for that is to be able to get that onto the page, isn't it? That's why you're actually interviewing them. It doesn't matter how you hear it back to yourself, I guess. Well, it's funny because I had to um, transcribe it because um, I couldn't find the original transcription. I just found the recording. And I was just transcribing it. I say at the very end of the interview, um, oh, thanks for doing this interview. Um, I had to wing it because I don't know what the circumstances were. I can only imagine that I was so busy that day and I couldn't prepare for the interview. But in my head, I'm like, well, I know everything about the chilies and I can pretty much just write down what the topics are going to be like talk about auditions I think that's what I meant I'd, I'd written down topics rather than questions <laughs> so I think the ambience of it was me just going like right let's, let's invent a question from these topics but it all worked out man but that's the great thing about Chad you know listening to Anthony he is a, a great speaker but with Chad it feels like a, a more natural conversation that moves from subject to subject very naturally and then, as you say, you're able to, to tailor your questions to follow the conversation. I love listening to Chad speak because he he is so relaxed. Yeah, definitely. He's definitely got a real kind of everyman kind of demeanour about him. I love the fact in the interview when he talks about, like, sitting in his car listening to, to the Abbey Road EP. It's so honest, man. <laughs> like, you know, he barely heard of the band that he auditioned for and has now spent the last 35 years drawing for. You yeah. know, it's great. Right, that's right, and he repeatedly... References the fact that he didn't really know anything about the Chilies before he joined them. Fantastic stuff. But also, I suppose, I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm a drummer, but not that that really came up in the interview, but I think when you ask questions about drumming to drummers, um, they're more inclined to sort of relate to you on a certain level. They're, they're, he's, not, he's not used to being the centre of attention. It's Anthony and Flea that do the interviews. So when he does get centre of attention, if it's about something naturally that he wants to talk about, then that's mm. great. Again, you're not going to bring up stupid subjects with someone. Um, so you just get them talking and they're, and they're quite happy to talk. So let's, in that interview, you talk, about, you talk to Chad about preparing for an audition, how he prepared for an audition. So from us to you, as an interviewer, how would you prepare for an interview? Does it change if it's a band you know really well? I mean, you just said you like you're gonna. Oh, I know all about that, so that should be cool. Like, has it evolved nowadays? You're going to interview someone. What's the process of getting ready for that? Uh, a lot of research. I've I've interviewed people that I've barely known, um, uh, quite a few times actually. Um, uh, I remember going to South by Southwest uh, Festival one year and interviewing this uh, young hip hop artist. And I literally had no idea who this person was. But you do your research and, you know, you ask the right questions, you get the same interview out. It's like, you know, I mean, you watch, like, news programmes and and you've got um, the reporters on that. You know, one day they'll be live from, you know, some local pizzeria that's been broken into and then the next day they're in um, Ukraine or something. But they're experts for those two minutes that they're on TV and you believe them because they've done the research, they're there and they're telling a story. So when I go in an interview, I'm well tooled up. I'm like, I know who I'm speaking to, I know what I'm gonna do. My process never really changed, like I said, it just got better. Um, but my process was always the same. If I had half an hour with someone, I would have a notebook 
and it was like a sort of little notebook that had like 30 lines in it and I would write 30 questions in an order that sort of made sense to me that hopefully it would flow like the order I, I talked about earlier because the way that I figured it was when you're in a conversation with someone if they answer decently it might be like a minute per question and that way you get all your questions asked if they answer better and it's longer questions then you sort of start compromising which one you're going to ask and if there's someone like Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys who I interviewed once and he just answers yes or no to every question then you're really on the back foot you're like struggling it's like where do I go where do I go so what I do is I do all my research and I try and prepare as best as I can a conversation that will flow and when you get there that's when you feel the energy of the person sometimes it's going to be good sometimes it's going to be bad um, and you just you just go with the flow we're moving now on to AKCS, I've written. That'll be the swan and the myth, of course, in 2011. Yeah, so this was, uh, I think it must have been the summer of 2011. Um, I'm not sure the dates, but it was, uh, they were in London ahead of the release of I'm With You. So um, obviously I'd had the album and lived with it for a while uh, and loved it. Uh, but I pitched a cover story that uh, I really wanted to kind of explore uh, the relationship between Anthony and Flea. I suppose just because the fact that Josh, John had left and Josh had come in and another change in the band and yet these two guys are still there from the beginning and I kind of wanted to explore it so I'd, I'd, I'd asked to interview Anthony and Flea. As it turned out on the day, Chad was there with Anthony so I got Anthony and Chad um, and I was hoping that I would get Flea at a later date but <laughs> that didn't transpire unfortunately. But um, I'd already kind of like chosen the cover picture for the for the the um for, for the cover it was uh it's a great picture i've got it here it's a 1986 picture um of anthony and flea taken by uh lisa hallen i think her name was so it's this great picture of them looking very youthful uh flea with his la lakers top on and anthony with his arm draped around him and for me it just really kind of summed up um that bond between them and i already knew that i was going to put the uh the beating heart of the Red Hot Chili Peppers on the cover. I knew that was what the tagline was going to be. So I'd kind of angled this interview to explore the uh, the relationship between them. Uh, uh, like I said, it didn't end up getting flea, but I got Anthony's uh, side of the story. Um, so yeah, I turned up to, they were in a central London hotel suite uh, and I turned up and there's like two adjoining rooms and um, their publicist uh, uh, and some label people are in one room and other people are in the other room with doing interviews. Um, so um, I go into the room when it's my turn and there's Anthony and Chad sitting there and also Clara, Flea's daughter, was there. She was taking photos. Um, so I got to meet Clara, which was nice because we'd actually been chasing her for quite a while to take photographs for the magazine. Um, so that was the first time I met her and got to speak to her and got her email and stuff. Um so I went in and uh, I told them what the angle was going to be. It was actually a two-part interview. I said, I'm going to spend the first half, I want to sort of explore your, you guys' friendship and the bond between you guys. And the second half of the interview was uh, talking about Blood Sugar because that was its 20th anniversary because uh, I think the, the, the issue was coming out around about that time, September uh, 2011. So I was going to be 
talking about into blood sugar. So, um, yeah, we got into the conversation. We had a, a, a really great chat. Um, in fact, I was rereading the, the, the blood sugar questions, and it's great. Some great insights into I could have lied. Uh, they're talking about how they came up with it, like the give it away. They talk about the greeting song, which is great. Like, whoever discusses that, do you know what I mean? So getting to, getting to delve into that was pretty cool. Um, so, yeah, that was my introduction to sort of the I'm With You um, era band. Um, weirdly enough, we didn't actually to talk too much about the album, so I never really got the opportunity to ask about Josh. But um, I don't think I'd really kind of mentally connected with the idea of Josh in the band at that point. Obviously, I, I heard the album, like, I love that album, I still do. But it wasn't until, I think, after the interview and they played uh, they played Coco, it was like a secret gig or it was like an intimate gig anyway. And that was the first time I saw Josh live and, man, I got it. Like, I saw him on stage and he's twirling around and jumping and his energy, man, it was just like... I get it. I get this guy. Like, and that's when I truly like connected with Josh and just realised actually he's the right guy for the band. Like that energy was, that energy was right. So it's uh, it's a shame I didn't get to ask them at the time, but um, uh, the interview itself was great. Um, we spoke for however long it was. I think it was like forty five minutes. That's kind of the standard cover story. Is about forty five minutes. Sometimes you get an hour if you're lucky. Um, and then afterwards. Um, Clara took a picture of me and Anthony and Chad together and I got them to sign, you can see behind me this mother's milk that's signed by Chad and Anthony uh, and then the interview finished uh, and Anthony ran off to the toilet and I was a bit kind of distressed at that point because basically the night before or in the days leading up to it, I don't know how long I had both basically poured my heart into this letter that I sort of hand wrote this letter just sort of addressed to the band and just like a from me to you, thank you for the music, thank you for shaping my life and, and building this foundation of passion that I've built a career on. And, uh, you know, I truly believe, I said at the start, I think, like every decision I've made has been based on um, my sort of viewpoint in life, which is very much shaped, as is with anyone, it's shaped when you're a teenager. Uh, and for me, it was the Chili Peppers. It was like, how can I do something with my life that will lead to me, I don't know, being in the Chili Peppers or doing something for them? And it's the same with the Beatles as well. The Beatles were hugely impactful on my life. Like, the Beatles is one of the reasons I, I fell in love with London and, and ended up uh, moving here. Uh, I moved down in 2006. Um, but those, those bands were people that shaped my life and, and, and the decisions that I made in life. And I truly believe like I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for those two bands. So I managed to put that down on paper. Um, and then the next guy came in, the next journalist came in to do the interview. And I was like, oh, man, I missed my opportunity. And then luckily, Anthony came out of the toilet. So we were in like the, the sort of the hallway of the suite. And he came out of the bathroom and I just went I was straight up to him. And I was just like... Um, I want to give you this letter, you know, obviously don't read it now, just take it and, and read it. And um, it just felt so good to get it off my chest, sort of thing, put it down on paper and know that hopefully he might read it. I just know that he touched someone's life, you know, the impact that he made and, and they all made. Like, like it's, 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 we, we talked earlier, earlier on about them being like an inclusive unit. Like it's, they're all responsible. Uh, and I'm certainly not the only person to feel that way. Luckily, I'm one of the few that managed to tell him so. 
As I sat down with Anthony and Chad, I began to explain that my pitch for this cover story was really to explore the enduring bond between Anthony and Flea that had blossomed before the band ever existed and really was the key to its continued success. Before I'd even had the opportunity to turn that into my first question, and while Chad noisily tinkered in the background serving himself a fruit salad, Anthony began reflecting on their unique connection. Right, the enduring force that is friendship and love. Um, well, I don't think we'd ever, you know, take the time to verbalize quite as much as we do if, if we didn't have to um, do interviews. Um, it's just kind of a natural thing. It's like, I know Chad has a family and, you know, he would, I don't think he would ever abandon his brother along the way and, and for whatever reason Flea and I grew up sort of like brothers mm-hmm. um, at a time when we were both kind of 15 and poor and and really all you had was your connection to your, your friends and your brothers and um, our band has always kind of been based around you know, friendship and closeness and, and doing something with people that you care about rather than hired guns and you know when when we've taken other people into the band it's 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 everything and all at once rather than like oh we'll give you a little bit of responsibility or we'll be you know marginally friendly with you it's like when you join it's you you join the family completely yeah so i think that's kind of given us a little bit of a reason to maybe work through some of the crises when other bands, you know, throw in the towel. But, you know, also we just, we have a good thing going and I think we all are very grateful for it. And as long as it's alive and well, why not? And you and Flea quickly became like the responsible for the band in terms of when, when people were coming and going, you were hiring and firing. How did you share responsibilities at the, at the start? Um, it's always been an equal responsibility of everybody. Like I said, you know, when when you join this band, you're taking on one-fourth of the responsibilities. Um, I, I think the reason that Flea and I have taken the time and energy to stick with it and find new members when, when those moments arise is just because we care. We care, and, and we like to honor this this entity which has been so good to us um, you know it's, I think it's a rare very rare thing when you can create um, a musical identity that survives as long as the Red Hot Chili Peppers have and to disrespect that or ignore the beauty of that creation and, and, and everything that it's given to so many people would be kind of lame so you know when it's in disrepair um and, and it needs some some loving, tender repair, then, um, then we take the time to figure it out. Turning to Chad, I asked him whether, as the new guys, when he and John first joined the band, was Anthony and Flea's close friendship and the prospect of having to become a part of that intimidating at all? Um, you know, John was in the group for a little bit before that I, before I joined. And, uh, but he was very young. He was 18 years old, and um, I had a little bit more experience with, with with music and bands. And you know, we were I was a year older than these guys, but um, so I didn't really 
I don't, you know, I didn't know that much about the band. John was his favorite band. It was, you know, like, you know, it was, it was like, for me, it would be like me joining Led Zeppelin or something, you know? And so, uh, uh, it wasn't like, oh, wow, I'm trying out for the Sleep Pepper, this big rock band. I mean, I'm trying to think back now. It was a long we time We were not ago. a big rock band. <laughs> well, the, but you know what? They had a record deal, and I was like, oh, yeah. God, great, cool, man. I play with a band like that, a record deal. Man, that would be awesome, you know. So it, there wasn't this big, like, wow, you know. It was just do your thing and see what this is all about. And they were just, like, really... At the time, see, I'd come from the Midwest, and um, I, I looked very different than these guys, you know, long hair, bandana, I was like kind of going bald, so I was like covering it up, and then I wore like cut off Metallica t-shirts, and like they looked at me like, I need, this is the kind of guy that, you know, that walks down Sunset Strip with like Poison and, you know, Molly Cruz, not the guy who would be in our band. But to give them all the credit in the world, once they sat down to play, that all went out the window. It was all about the music, you know. So we connected right away. I mean, it was like a bomb went off in that little room in Holly Gully, you know. It was like, I remember fleeing. Everything was fast and hard back then. It was all. And we just pushed each other. And John broke a string, changed uh-huh. faster than I've ever seen anyone change a string in life. And the jam didn't stop. It was just really, it was crazy. So... But like really exciting for me, I was like, I'd never played with any like that energy like that. I never, you know. But at the time, it was like, what kind of haircut did you have, and how many kind of tattoos, and these guys were very interested in in, in that sort of the aesthetic, and you know, and, and so there that was the rub. But we, you know, musically we hit it off right away, and then you know it was a natural progression of time before we all felt, you know, we were equal in this band, but. Um, they were very open to... Uh, from, I, mean, I will also just add that I feel like Chad and John, because they were the two newer guys, did have a special... They had a special bond regardless, but there was always a very special thing mm-hmm. between Chad and John. And maybe it's because they, they did come in around the same time together. And, you know, thank goodness, because those kind of bonds are very um, useful yeah. when it comes to writing music and... You did. You're right. I always kind of felt like his, like, older brother or something. Big brother. Yeah. Because yeah. I know that feeling. I have an older brother, you know. We just, we connected on lots of stuff musically and just, he's the kind, you know, you got to know him. He's the kind of guy that you just want to, like, you know. Get a headache. <laughs> no, cuddle. Yeah. Out we come then. 2011, Swallowing the Myth, and Tone, if you've got anything to say about that one. For, for me, listening to these two talk is fantastic, because Anthony is such a wordsmith, and I'm not saying this is, this is the case, because I don't know it to be the case, but he almost seems to think about absolutely every word he says, and he's a, he's a poet, and he has a, a poetic lilt to mm. his normal, everyday... T- uh, so, you know, it's cadence, talking. if you will. Yeah, it's amazing. Chad, on the other hand, is very chilled, like we said. And But what I, what I love about this interview is when you, when you start talking to Chad, you know, it's very, 
very loose. He's talking about various things, moving from one thought to another, all in the, the same sort of stream of consciousness. And then he brings Anthony back in. And I like it when Anthony, so, so, you know, he comes in at the end talking about the relationship between Chad and John. But it seems less, it seems more of a natural thought for him. Oh, he just suddenly thought that and he, and he brings it into the conversation. And I, I just loved that part of it because hearing the swan talk about something which has just come to him is not necessarily, I don't necessarily always get that feeling with him. Well, I think he's very um, considered in what he says. Yeah. But, I mean, I think he... I'm not saying that he pre-thinks his answers. I think that when he's talking, he's very aware of what he's saying uh, and maybe careful not to be misconstrued or, or whatever. Um, but also, I think, talking earlier on about how a good interview is like a good conversation, I was aware that the questions I had prepared for the interview, thinking that I was just going to get Anthony and then Chad's there, I was aware that I had to sort of divert attention to Chad at some point so I didn't want to sort of start off being like hey Anthony, hey Anthony, 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 Anthony so you turn at some point and sort of bring him in and then the the whole kind of vibe changes it's not just like oh he's talking to the singer, great, it's yeah. actually actually no, bring him in and then he opens up you know and, and I love that when he talks about like he just wants to give John a cuddle you know yeah. just, you can just picture, you can just picture yeah. Chad the big brother and John the little Greeny and he's like cuddling him and looking after and him. I, I love that man. And actually, it's yeah. such a great mental image. Yeah, it's a lovely, it's a lovely moment. Well, it is, and it's also a moment yeah, which man. was totally unexpected, and a little snippet, a little, little golden nugget that you may, you could never have imagined that 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 bit of that conversation would would happen really during the course mm. of the interview. But hearing about that relationship between Chad and John, it's not necessarily something that they talk about that often. So, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed that. I love it when you see there's certain bits of video with Chad and John, and even even in the modern day as it goes on, you can see there is a certain bond between those people. It's not necessarily an instrumental bond because you'd you'd put the, the drums with the bass, mm. you might put the the, um, the guitarist with the lyricist more often, but there is just every so often the you capture them together and it's. Well, it's a dream for us. Uh, you've never actually, you've never got John, have you, Simon? To my, to my knowledge, no. Only that uh, brief encounter in Glasgow in two thousand and three. Um, um, I'm still holding out for a stroke of luck. I'm holding out. But what I do like you were saying there about the way that Anthony jumps in on the conversation there. He starts off the conversation saying, "We wouldn't normally talk about this stuff if we weren't doing interviews." Yes. So Chad probably hasn't vocalised the fact that he has this brotherly bond with John mm. because no one's bothered to ask. It's only when Anthony comes in and mentions it that the subject is brought up. Mm. It's not as if they see each other, you know, they've not seen each other for a week. Oh, how are you doing? Oh, I love you, man. You're my, mm. lo you're my little brother. Mm. It's, just, it's, just, it's a guy thing, isn't it? You just, these things are unspoken or just presumed. Mm. Yeah, a, a, a lovely moment. By the way, Sam, I love you. <laughs> So, uh, so I'm, I'm with you. I love you. Yeah, the getaway. All right, one, two, three, four. What you drinking? Go more go. than enough for you. Well, over and over and over again now. Over and over until it ends. What you drinking, Sam? What you drinking? Well, gentlemen, I am double fisting. Please don't say that. I've got a can of <laughs> North Brewing Company Automatic in one hand. 
for the people, surely. Excuse me? Also meant for the people, yes, indeed. Um, 4.5 California Pale Ale. Now, California? Just a, yeah, well, I mean, it's still falling into place, isn't it? I'm just going to apply some to the mouth. Looks like it's nearly finished. That one's nearly gone. I just... I, just go for the last drips. Mm. Now, what I would say about that mm. is... It's ambitiously tender, <laughs> but aggressively unadventurous. Okay. Make of that what you will. And now, I've spent the week in Southwold, uh, where Adnams, Adnams make their beer. Oh, th- I think this is your big one now, surely. This is a big one. So they've they awarded me this, a bottle of innovation. It's a 6.7%. Oh, for IPA. God's sake, Sam. So this might be the end of the best of me. Yeah. But I'll try it. Oh, goodness. Now, that is not aggressively tender. Yeah, but it's absolutely disgusting. <laughs> no, it's, it's delicious. So thank you, Adnams. <laughs> I look forward to working with you in the future. Can I have something a bit weaker? <laughs> Lovely. Ben, what are you drinking? Well, Sam, I'm drinking Foster's. Foster's? Yeah. Okay, where did you get that? I got it from Morrison's, would you believe? Oh, now that is a a break from tradition. tradition. I know. I went on a lunch break. I went to Asda, and it was £16, would you believe, for 18 cans of carling. So I went So you spent the extra petrol money to go to Morrison's? I happened to be also driving that way, luckily. Ah, okay. That makes sense. So, I'll take it to the mouth. Yeah, apply it to the mouth. How's that feel? It says flavourless as Carly. Okay, what about the lolly? Hard and round. Hard One, and round. two, three, Hang on, four. Simon! Oh, <laughs> oh sorry, what are, you, what are you drinking? Well, can I, can I first just say, being a long-time listener to your wonderful podcast and hearing you guys sing that song and now seeing you in person singing that song, that was a treat. A perfect unison. Ah. I'm probably doing finger wrapping as well. Yes. Well, thank you. It's our, our pleasure to perform live from the garage with a slight delay. Uh, I, am dr- I am drinking some ice-cold Coors uh, topped up with a little bit of Waitrose own uh, lemonade because um, I've got a sweet tooth. Well, as we said earlier, I'm sucking a lolly, so we're all uh, sweet tooth. I haven't, got, I haven't got any sweetness, but I can barely get through it. One, two, three, four. What you drinking? Got more than two, enough two, for you. Four. Well, over and over and over again now. Over and over till it sends. What you drinking? So, as we move swiftly to 2016, Anthony Kiedis. Simon, tell us a little bit about how this one came about. Yeah, so this was in the run up to uh, the getaway. Um, Anthony was coming over to London. And I pitched uh, and subsequently won the uh, cover story. Um, And this time we were very fortunate to get a photo shoot with him. Uh, We'd kind of begged and pleaded saying, come on, we've done, uh, you've had two covers from us. Please, can we get a photo shoot? Certainly by by the, the change between the 2011 interview, 2016 interview, Clashes sort of changed aesthetically uh, with the same creative director, um, brilliant guy called Rob Myers, uh, very lovely chap, uh, and his work had developed 
uh, over time as well. So by the time we got to 2016, we were very well known for covers and, and the great sort of photographers that we used. So we had um, uh, a great uh, photographer from New York, a guy called Kevin Amato, who sort of flew over especially to, to shoot this. Um, obviously, we've got to like run people past the band so they can like approve them, and, and he was approved, um, which is great because he was a big fan as well. And so we were planning this great shoot, and it was all going to happen in a central London hotel, uh, the same one as before, I think. And so uh, the plan was we were going to set up a makeshift studio and, and shoot him there. But then, like, I don't know how long it was before, like a week before or something, um, the publicist, so the publicist was uh, at the label. Um, she worked at, uh, at Warner's. Uh, she called me up one day and she was like, um, you know, after your interview and after the shoot and everything, would you be up for doing a little something for the label? We're going to interview them for... for would you interview him for, like, a, a thing that we need for the band? I said, like, yeah, yeah, of course. I'm happy to do it, whatever, whatever you need me to do. So I agreed to it. And then the night before the interview, I'm driving home and I get a phone call from um, someone else at the label and she was like, yeah, uh, so I'm uh, just phoning it, just double check details for tomorrow. So we basically will go live at 5.30 and, um, you know, we'll have you on camera. And I was just like, wait, what? What are you talking about? Because uh, I just figured it was for some, like, I don't know, press kit type interview sort of thing. And she's like, no, no, so we're going to go live on their Facebook channel at 5.30. And so I was just like, I mean, obviously I'll do it, but I was shitting myself. Absolutely. Like I say, it's a difference between sitting in a room and having a conversation with someone and sitting having a conversation with someone, not just being filmed, but knowing that it's going out yeah. live to every single Chili Peppers fan that's tuning in, you know? So anyway, I said, I said yes. So the next day... Turn up to the hotel and we've got uh, a suite and in one room we've got this uh, the makeshift studio, the, 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 the backdrop set up and they, they get to work doing that and I go into the, into the room and to do the interview. Um, so, great interview. Uh, I mean, I was looking through the full transcript. We, we obviously get into the getaway. We talk about Josh coming on. Uh, board um, and we talk about some songs in particular. We were talking about uh, uh, feasting on the flowers, uh, the hunter, death of a samurai. We talked about. Um, I mean, obviously that I think that song's about. Um, no, the hunter is about Anthony's dad. I had a really good chat about him because he was like ill at the time. We talked about the artwork. Just a really, really good conversation. Um, and at the end of that interview, <laughs> I says I was sort of getting onto about like um, we were talking about sort of fans. Uh, sort of reactions and stuff to, and, and I sort of brought up like I don't suppose you'll remember you probably don't don't pretend that you do but we met five years ago and I'd given you this letter just sort of saying basically how much you changed my life so I'm one of these fans that would like say to you thank you and he sort of goes to me oh yeah this is ringing a bell <laughs> and I couldn't tell by the reaction like are you are you saying that to make me feel better or are you saying that and you can't remember at all, or are you saying it and you're thinking, oh yeah, that's that guy, <laughs> oh dear. Like I couldn't really work out what that kind of thing went, but yeah, I managed to sort of remind him and uh, um, and do that. And then interview finishes, we go next door into to do the shoot, 
and uh, our stylist had like uh, prepared like a loads of stuff. Um, it like this really nice like Gucci coat and this like Levi's uh, sort of denim sort of trucker jacket thing and and like a bunch of stuff and and Anthony was like saw everything and he was like yeah yeah I'll put this on I'll put it on <laughs> and me and uh, Rob my creative director we were sort of sitting there going oh god I wish he would take his shirt off <laughs> <laughs> and Anthony's friend uh, who's uh, his assistant or whoever it was that was with him says like what was that and Rob was like oh I'm just saying you know it would have been cool if you'd taken his shirt off <laughs> so he goes Anthony take your shirt off He's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and the people from the Labour were like, oh, no, we didn't want him to take his shirt off. But, um, I mean, he looks great. I mean, the pictures are, are, are so fantastic. He was shot in front of, like, this uh, um, baby pink sort of um, background. And he, we, had, we had, like, these uh, pink roses. So this beautiful shot of him on the cover wearing, like, this Gucci jacket draped over his, um, over his shoulders. So that was the story of the shoot. Uh, that was wonderful. And then straight from there, down to another room where we um, we walk in and it's and there's lights and cameras and like wires all over the place and then just like one guy sitting at this laptop or like a couple of laptops with headphones on setting up this live interview. And, excuse me. And I go into my seat and Anthony's like sitting to my left. And Rob is sitting opposite me, just looking at me, going, holy shit, I can't believe this. And I'm looking at him going, oh, my word, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And um, we got through it. Uh, we got through the uh, the fan Q&As. I don't know if any of your listeners might have been one of the lucky people that um, got their questions asked, but we kind of fired through all these questions. Um, and that was great. And then afterwards, um, I got I got another picture with him better than the last one the last one was a bit fuzzy this one was you know I looked a bit better I was wearing a Dolly Parton t-shirt felt a bit felt a bit cooler uh, I got him to sign this copy of Blood Sugar Six Magic um, dedicated to my eldest daughter Etta so he signed that and I was really really chuffed with that and the same thing happened Rob and I left the hotel kind of in silence and then we got outside and he's he's a huge fan as well like his he's his hair goes down to the bottom of his back and it's all based on like 1989 Anthony Kiedis. Uh, so us being big fans, again, we just left the hotel in silence and it, we got out the hotel, got to the end of the street when we were clearly out of view of anyone that might have been looking out the, the suite window and we just looked at each other and just hugged each other, like this big hug of just like, wow, well, that was incredible, man. We've just spent the last like four hours in the com company of Anthony Kiedis and we've got a really great conversation with him, really great shoot. And ultimately, like, a great cover story, so nailed it. I think what we'll say is, one, wow, what a story. Mm. But also links to all the cover stories that we're going to talk about and to that YouTube video will be below in the show notes on the podcast. So get on your phone, scroll down, and, and check out the photos of that particular shot, uh, of that particular shoot are absolutely incredible. Didn't know you'd flown a guy over from New York to take those shots. That's um, that's something else. <laughs> well, you know, when you have when you have artists of a certain caliber, um, we would we would predominantly and uh, exclusively use fashion photographers. That's where classic aesthetic came from, using fashion photographers rather than music photographers. Uh, the, the photographers that we used invariably loved their music. So when you say to someone who's used to shooting models or or, or or campaigns or something, hey, do you want to shoot Anthony Kiedis? Like, 
they jump on a plane. You know, they they know what they know what a good subject is. Looking at this interview and the clip that that we'll play in a moment, and you having spoken to Anthony over the years, the one thing that struck me is not only that this was just a a really really natural conversation and so listenable but there seemed to be a change in Anthony I know we're talking a number of years and of course people change but listening to Anthony in 2016 is a different experience to listening to him answer questions uh, from 2004 he just seems to be more natural, m- more open to talking, especially in this clip, openly open about the sort of writing process and everything that's gone with getting the record out. Is that something you pick up on? Well, I think the circumstances changed. Yeah, I think the circumstances changed. I think the first time I interviewed him in, in 2003 was like, it was midnight, it was backstage, it was after a gig. I was inexperienced. I think you can pick up on those vibes. Um, then that previous interview was he had Chad sitting next to him. So maybe you're, you sort of change the way that you're talking. With this one, it was me and him alone in a hotel room, basically sitting next to each other. So when the environment is different, I think maybe you act different. So this was very much one-on-one. And, and I think, I mean, every time I've interviewed Anthony, like we were saying earlier, he's very deliberate with what he talks about. And he is very poetic in what he says, but he's honest and he, t- and he talks about things uh, and, and he says what he wants to say in the way that he wants to say it. So, uh, yeah, I think he sounds very natural, but it's it's only just the environment that's changed, not necessarily him. I think from a lot of fans' point of view, to be in your position and be able to talk about songs like uh, Feasting on the Flowers and, and The Hunter, to be talking about things that, is, that mean so much to him, like Hillel and, uh, and Blackie, that feels like a different level of talking to, of talking to someone. What's that like? Well, I mean, he's, he wrote the songs about them. So if you don't want to talk about them, you don't put songs in an album. You know, if I was from a tabloid newspaper, I would pick up on those things straight away and ask a different question than the one I would have asked. But, you know, once you put your private life out there or, or something in a song, it's sort of fair game for asking. It's just up to the interviewer how you want to go there and what you want to do with it. With uh, with Feasting on the Flowers, it's like we were... I sort of picked out a few songs that I want to talk about. So I says, I think I said something like, I I presume that that's about Hillel. That's what I get. Because, you know, there wasn't there wasn't any album notes or anything and they hadn't done interviews. I think we were the first one. So I hadn't heard anyone else talking about it, but you read the lyrics, you listen to the lyrics, and it sounds like it. So I think I said something like, oh, it sounds to me like you're singing about Hillel. And then he just says, yeah, and then he starts talking about it. And then The Hunter is about, you can tell that it's about a father-son relationship. And I think I said uh, something like, you know, has is it because you've just become a father you're thinking about these things? And he says, well, no, it's actually... I don't know if he sort of admits it the way, out of the way, properly but he sort of says it's about his dad basically so then the the conversation just went naturally down to however he wanted to explain that situation but also on later on in the later interview so we don't know like not too many spoilers or maybe we will on not the one you're you're talking line specific stuff to him in a later interview if i was uh, in his position i think i'd enjoy someone coming 
with that knowledge rather than just generic interviews. Let's say like a tabloid or just someone who's turned up doesn't know much about the music. To be interviewed by a fan, do you think that's different for people like the Swan or or uh, Flea, who often and without too too much spoilers on um, As of the Children, some people haven't even read the book. Is there an appreciation from them? Do you think that that you know what you're talking about? I think if you're being interviewed by someone, um, you can tell a difference between someone that has done their research and that hasn't. Um, I think when it comes to the chili peppers, I don't need to do that much research because it's all up here anyway. It's just a case of how you how you um, put out your line of questioning, how you set it up, and how you present it to them. And like I said, if, if you're having a good conversation, if I'm sitting talking to you and we're having a good chat, and all of a sudden I say, "So, tell me about your mum," you know, it, it doesn't sound too incongruent. It's not like we've it's just come out of nowhere. It might be like you've mentioned something. And I sort of circle back to it. It's just it's just a normal conversation. And at the end of the day, if they don't want to talk about it, they won't talk about it. Um, and I, I won't mm-hmm. go back there. Um, but it never happens. Um, and also, I don't think we got too, like, personal. I mean, I, I mean, you know, we know ultimately there was a, a, a decline in health of Blackie. Um, so we didn't get into the specifics. Uh, it was just about like you've written a song about that about a father son relationship, and he sort of explained it a little bit. But Anthony doesn't really like to sort of talk about what his songs are about. So I think it was very much like him sort of saying, "Well, this could be about this," and you know, considering uh, a father son. Yeah, relationship. and that, that's the kind of feeling um, that we we we'll talk about. Not the one um, because it is. It is a good conversation, but again, he only he only says as much as he's happy to say. He, you know, he he talks about it and says that he's happy that um, you know you connected with the song ultimately. But as you said, he doesn't he doesn't yeah. go t- too far past that. No, exactly. So you don't want, you don't want to push those no. buttons. Um, but as as you can see, as you as you hear in this clip, um, it's. It's Anthony talking about. He starts off talking about um, flea. I mean, I introduce in this clip like what what we're going to talk about, but it starts off being about the relationship, and it wasn't necessarily deliberately me leading to that. But he just mm. gets onto that subject. That's why I included this audio clip in particular because it's just like it's another example of that friendship, that bond between them, and it's palpable. And when he talks about uh, him caring for flea. It's like, man, you know, who else talks like that? There's not a lot of other rock stars out there that talks about their band members like they are actually brothers. So it's quite a nice insight. This is The Swan, 2016. Naturally, my first question when I sat down with Anthony this time was, how are you, given that just weeks before he had been hospitalised with extreme stomach pains? After discussing his recuperation and health management, I asked him about Flea's own medical emergency, because back in 2014, Flea broke his arm in five places, which understandably affected his playing and ultimately delayed the sessions for what would become the getaway. I had read that this delay was a factor in the band not having Rick Rubin produce the album, leading them to working with Brian Burton, a.k.a. Danger Mouse, and so asked him whether at any point in that period he'd thought, shit, what are we going to do here? 
There was a definite shit, I hope my friend's gonna be okay and can play the bass again someday moment. I had left the mountain about an hour earlier than Flea to go check on my lad who was waiting for me back at the camp. Mm -hmm. And Flea said, I'm just gonna do, you know, another run or two. And the sun was going down and it was that weird sketchy thing where you probably should have called it a day a bit earlier. What? Hung up the boots. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes that, that last one is the one that gets you. Um, same with surfing. Like, never say, I'm going to just take one more. Surf until you're done surfing, then get out. Same with snowboarding. So I got a call that he crashed and was in an ambulance, and I raced over to the bottom of the mountain and saw him in the back of the ambulance as they're, you know, starting to hit him with the morphine and everything else because he was busted up. And I saw that look in his eye. I was like, man, I hope this kid's going to be all right because he really depends on his limbs for his livelihood, course, yeah. as, as many of us do. Yeah. Um, but he was so diligent about repairing himself and rehabbing his elbow, which was just shattered. This whole thing was just a mess. So I, didn't, I never really felt like it was a bad setback, you know, we lost Danger Mouse for a minute there because we had already decided to work with him. Mm -hmm. um, that the elbow wasn't really a deciding factor with Rick. We had already, you know, come to a group decision that we needed badly to do something different, different, fresh, you know, out of our comfort zone and just push ourselves into a process we hadn't experienced before. So the weird thing is we lost our producer because he has every day of his life mapped out for the next many years and you know new people calling him every day to try to get him for this project or that and movies television yeah. music the whole works he's a smart kid and you know very into what he does so that was a loss but it turned out again to be probably the just the thing we needed just the thing Flea needed to go get right with himself and we had all this extra time to kind of practice and take a look at the body of work we had written and deciding whether or not that was really up to snuff or do we keep the best bits and and move forward so somehow Brian made time in his schedule literally nine months later um, and we went into the studio and you know decided to keep the best of what we had written prior to working with Brian and then write as much good stuff as we could with Brian live in the studio. Yeah. Totally new method, very exciting, very nerve-wracking, high pressure. You know, the boys would go in in the morning and Brian's kind of like a musical director, you know, where he wants to start with a beat and then he wants to find the best section of that beat and loop it and, and then he calls Flea in and he's like, you know that feeling you get when you listen to whatever it is, a Michael Jackson record, and Flea's like, yeah, he's like, well, give me that feeling. So Flea's like, okay, and he just starts riffing. He's like, I like the 16th bar of the thing you played. Let's repeat that. And then Flea would repeat that and put his own magic onto it. And So he would, he would build songs like that, and we had never done that before. Yeah. But the end result was beautiful music. Did it feel like a challenge or anything at the time, or were you just kind of embracing that? Uh, embraced it but for sure a challenge because I had already written lyrics for 25 songs mm -hmm. and didn't have that much more to say so fortunately the music was very inspiring and I would get these CDs at the end of the day with all kinds of new music and just go whoa 
okay, this one I get and have ideas for. This one I have no idea what to do. I, I love it, but where do you even sing on that? An album of instrumentals, maybe. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I wanted to be in on the party. So I just kept chipping away and um, really clocked mad hours writing and trying and many days I would go in and sing for Brian what I thought was good and he would say that's not that great and, you know please try again and um, there was a song that I loved so much and could not crack the code for I knew the music was great um, it was super interesting and on the very last day that I would work with Brian the last day of recording period I tried one last time and finally ended up singing the thing that Brian liked and ended up on the record. His record is called We, uh, we Turn Red. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was a very different. Um, I liked it. You know, Brian is a special, special human being with a great creative energy and a mad passion for making music, listening to music, talking about music, thinking about music, just... Really immersing himself and immersing himself in the He's immersed. Thing. He's always immersed. I don't think he ever comes out of the immersion. He's just his mind is really a a, a glowing orb of yeah. musical thoughts. You'd said that you felt like you tapped into something. Do you think this is like a, maybe a method that's clearly worked for you that this could be continued? We could do it again for sure. Um, I felt like these guys could have done it, you know, all day every day for months on end with that kind of direction you know you don't always have uh, an instigator like that that's not how we're used to writing you know we we usually kind of split up write ideas get together bang them together put them together and you know formulate different arrangements but with a, a guy who's sitting there directing and giving you ideas for where to go seems like the possibilities are a bit endless when you have somebody as prolific as Flea. Like, yeah. he can just let it flow and, you know, sky's the limit. So, and same with Josh and Chad. These boys are on a weird level of <laughs> bottomless wells. Of, it's just a great of, band uh, to be working in, isn't it? It's not a bad band to have joined along <laughs> the way. Yeah. A little bit of something extra. Well, I was just going to say that... Uh, it reminded me of um, after the, the Getaway uh, released, the, the band came and they played, they played the O2 and my creative director Rob and I went and we were so like fortunate to get side of stage again and it's just these little moments, being able to share these things with people that are passionate about the same music that you are and again Rob and I were so emotional just like side of stage again next to Flea's bass rig, just thinking well, you know these are the moments that make things special you know, you, you feel very fortunate to be in a job where you get these amazing things that happen. Um, and it's just, it's, it's great to share it with someone uh, as, as cool as Rob as well. He and I uh, were very lucky to have that experience with Anthony. It does prompt a question, actually, talking about side of stage. What does it sound like if you are side of stage? Because it's like, for us, you'd think it's a dream, go side of stage, see them playing, hear the gig, must sound amazing. But I imagine it sounds pretty shit because you're not get you... What are you hearing side of stage? Uh, you tend to hear their monitors, so you pretty much hear what they hear. But whatever side of stage you're on is what you're going to hear most. So invariably, I would hear 
if you're on Flea's side, you would hear a lot of bass, you'd hear the drums and hear singing, whereas you wouldn't hear much guitar. So uh, Josh would have been on the far side of the stage at that point. But screw that, man. I don't care what it sounds like. (laughs) You're that close to the band when they're performing live. Yeah, yeah, that is incredible. And you get, like, obviously an amazing view. But the energy and the vibe of being in with the the, the audience, it's, it's, you can't compare. Like, the energy is, it doesn't have that outside of stage. It's people looking cool and looking at each other, thinking, like, who are you? Uh, And, you know, comparing VIP badges rather than, like, jumping around silly. So we were quite, there were some people in front of us at that point. And I remember it's like we couldn't get to the front because, like I say, everyone just stands there looking cool. And we're like, we just want to lose our shit and dance around. So I say, like, you know, let's wait till the encore. And I'm sure they're going to come on and they'll do, like, giveaway under the bridge. Let's just <laughs> push past these idiots, get to the front and go crazy. Uh, and that's pretty much exactly what we did because we were very, very drunk. And, you know, when giveaway comes on, what else are you going to do except jump around and go crazy? Amazing, amazing. But also for you, I, I, I guess it, you know, like you say, there's people there who are there because they're very important people who aren't necessarily fans of the band. But this represents to you, a, a, you know, a chance to be close to your heroes and the culmination yeah. of your of your of your endeavours. Really, you wouldn't be there if you hadn't worked hard and earned earned your opportunity to be there. So. Definitely. I mean, they're not. All, it's not. It's not all important people, you know. In the music industry, there's a lot of um, people that are are in the job because of the um, benefits. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. But the people that last the distance in any industry are the people that work hard and and um, you know enjoy the rewards of the benefits. But uh, mm. uh, you know, we were not ungrateful for being there. And and for me, any any opportunity to, um, yeah, get close to that kind of magic is um, is, is special, man. It's unforgettable, and it's it's memories that I pass on, and I'll, I'll forever keep. So into two thousand and nineteen with Mr. Simon Harper, and you are, I believe, speaking to Flea about Asif for the children. Lead us into this one. Yes. Well, this one was, um, if I remember correctly, it was a little bit more difficult to negotiate because it was through the books uh, publicist, the, the, the publishers, rather than the record label who I had a long-standing relationship with. So it was a little bit more like, this is us, this is what we do, uh, this is what we've done for the Chili's, can we get it? And of course, when you're a publisher, I, I mean, I can't remember the details, but they probably had like some kind of exclusive excerpt with a tab uh, like a spread uh, a broadsheet newspaper you know so it's it's like i'm like well i don't care about excerpts <laughs> i want i want the interview i want to be able to talk about it um but yeah luckily enough um it worked out um the publisher uh, publisher said uh yeah we'll get the interview there wasn't a shoot there wasn't going to be a shoot so we had to um we had to buy in uh, an image we got a, an amazing i don't have a copy on me but it's this uh, black and white Bruce Weber photo. Rob found it actually. It's beautiful, and it's like ro- uh, Flea, like sort of lying in water. So he's like kind of like uh, emer- emerging from water, or, or sort of half immersed in water, and his face is sticking out. The link will be in the show notes. It's a fantastic picture. It's beautiful. Um, so we we 
we got that picture and um, I was going to do a, a phone interview with Flea. So it's it's always funny when you get given somebody's phone number to phone because you're like, I hope I never get drunk to the point where that phone number gets rung. And I was like, that's not going to happen. But uh, yeah, well, I think he phoned me first, but then his number came up. Oh, fuck uh, off. Oh, wow. And then... Fuck off. Well, it reminds me <laughs> of the time he phoned me. Of course, yeah. After I tweeted him. But <laughs> but it's lucky that it did because we did, we had this fantastic interview, which we'll go into, but uh, um, it cut out near the end. Like, we were having this fantastic interview and it was getting better and better and better. And then the line just went dead. And then that, you know, you're just staring at the phone going, oh my God, what do I do? So I phoned him back. I was like, yeah. great. But uh, it was, that was, that was a really good um, interview. In fact, I would, I would say that it was literally one of the most inspirational conversations. I mean, presumably you guys have read the book. I got sent mm-hmm. a, a PDF of it from the publisher and I was at work when I got sent it and I did nothing else and I finished it in three hours and the, the book is amazing and it's so personal isn't it it's just like Flea's childhood laid bare I mean for a, for, for a Chili's fan it's incredible uh, and for with my journalistic hat on I'm sort of reading it going my god there's so much to unpick here like where do you start um, so I call him and, and, and I start off the conversation telling him look I'm a big fan um, I've been at you guys a long time um I didn't mention the fact that he'd we'd met briefly in Glasgow because he's not going to remember that. But uh, I say, you know, I'm going to refrain from the fanboy questions because we've got so much to ask for about the book. Um, and uh, we're going to try and focus on it. And he was like, have you read the book? And I was like, man, like, it's amazing. It's incredible. And he sort of sighed and he was like, oh, because the last guy I spoke to hadn't read it. And I was like, well, I have. And like, I'm ready to talk about it. And I think he was immediately kind of energised by that. So ultimately, I think we ended up speaking for like an hour and it was, it's just amazing. I mean, he's so eloquent and he's so intelligent and he's so, he's so perceptive of his emotions and and how it resonates and connects with other people. It's just, it's just an incredibly profound and emotional interview. I just think he's such a good person to talk to and he gets so deep. Um, We were talking about the book. He explained like why he wrote it. He discussed like the he in the book he sort of admits about like, these anxieties that he has and you know you don't see that side of a rock star and it's, you don't see that side in, in interviews it's only when they if they write a book they might talk about it and we talked about that I mean we just got so like deep into his into his um, sort of behind this the stories behind the stories basically and it was great man just beautiful interview and then like I said I got cut off. And I was like, God damn, like, how can, how could it go so wrong? Um, but yeah, luckily it came back. Um, but I think on his side, there was some interference because he was like, you sound like a robot now. So it kind of wrapped up quickly after that. But it was just such a great interview, like, such a good interview. And I think it was the only, I don't know if it was, no, it wasn't the only interview he did, but it was, it was the only cover story that he got for the book. Um, so... Uh, I was really proud to do that because it was such a clearly a very personal project for him. You know that yeah. book was spilling his guts, wasn't it, man? It's a, it's a it's an amazing book. Yeah, it's an amazing book and an amazing interview. And as you say, it, 
personified by the fact that you, you know you ask him a question about his insecurity, uh, his sort of educational insecurities, um, which is sort of your line of, of questioning to begin with. And he says, well, it wasn't really that, but it was this. And then, then he goes on to talk sort of about what drives him and wanting to discover why he does the things that he does. And that wasn't necessarily where your question had come from originally, but because you were, he was comfortable with you and in that instant you'd struck up that you know rapport it led the yeah. way for the whole for the whole thing and it's diff- it's it's difficult when you're doing a phone interview it's very difficult because you you cannot judge the energy of someone if you're in a room with someone you can either see straight away whether you're going to get on with someone or not um you know there's some artists that I've been big fans of and have gone and interviewed them and and like I would always make a thing of like getting some vinyl signed because when were you ever going to be in that situation again? And if it was a particularly good energy, you'd get a photo taken with them. But there were some interviews where you just realise that's not going to happen. Like, I'm not going to bother asking. But with a phone interview, you, you don't have eye contact. You can't sort of see emotions on somebody's face, so you don't know what they're going to feel. So for Flea to get that deep that quickly in a conversation with someone that he can't see or necessarily resonate or connect with, you know, that's... That's a, a pretty admirable quality of him mm. to be so like open and honest and candid as he was. It's a phenomenal interview. And you're gonna hear it right now. Well I should say just quickly before we go in, that there's a little bit of interference on this recording, and that's because well, A, I never thought that it was gonna be played on a podcast. It was for my own um use, but it was a a, a digital recorder next to my uh, iPhone, and so it's like that kind of, you know, digital interference that you hear throughout it. So it's a little bit annoying, but you can tune it out a little bit. It's a phenomenal interview, and we are going to hear it right now. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I must admit, I've listened to that one. Yeah, that's a that's a hell of an interview. Great work. You should honestly like the, the full thing. Oh, we 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 went deep, man. Like it's, I mean, I'm talking about like how how special it feels, like. You can have a conversation with someone and just be tired at the end of it because it's like you've been in therapy or something. Like, I remember I was sitting in this room doing it and I remember it would have been late at night and just going back down to my wife and just being like, oh, wow. Like, even if even if I wasn't a massive fan of the Chili's, even if it was just a rock star that I was interviewing, I came out of it just like, what an inspirational human mm-hmm. being, man. He's... Is that a joy to... I haven't, I haven't stopped recording. Is that staying in? That's staying in. But it's moments like that, as you say, that that moment, the moment in the car park uh, from the last one, that initial moment after the Kiedis interview, they all seem to me to be huge, uh, you know, moments in your in your career that only come about because you've, you know, you're, A, you work extremely hard, but you are a big fan, so you put... You know, you put the effort in, you put the research in, they, they, and they automatically trust you, I think, in a way that they don't necessarily feel for, yeah. for, the, for, for all the other interviewers. Well, like I said earlier on, you know, I, I was very careful to um, craft a reputation that 
people knew they could trust me. So people, that my, so my friends in the industry, the publicists that I would deal with and work with, they wouldn't put me forward to someone uh, if they didn't think that I was going to be treating them with respect. And so I would, you know, I would get great access to people because they knew that I wasn't going to ask stupid questions. But it was never not special. Um, and and I've met all my heroes. And so it's it's not, it's not, I don't really get nervous anymore. Uh, I get nervous about like the recorder not working or something going wrong, but I don't get nervous about meeting these people because I can't meet anybody more meaningful to me personally than the people I've already met. You know, once you've sat in a room and interviewed Anthony Kiedis, um, once you've sat with Paul McCartney and have him sing to you, once I've been in Elton John's house, I've had... Um, Patty Smith put her hand on my knee and talk about the sanctity of marriage. I've had Mavis Staples sing to me. You know, these things are things that I'll take to my grave, just like life doesn't get any better than that. Um, so I'm so grateful for the position I've had. And like you said, it's, it's hard work, but from a very, very, very selfish point of view, like it feels like I can get the tiniest of minute footnotes in the... Uh, what would you call it the sort of the lexicon of chili peppers you know their career their output their yeah oeuvre. you're in there you're in there like i love the fact that if you if yeah i love the fact that if you google anthony kiris and my name like things yeah. come up it's it's it for me it's having a very small part in that um i did the liner notes for um the 2012 um, reissue of uh, Paul McCartney's Ram. So in the special box set, you get this like 12,000 word uh, story in this hardback book. And so for me to have my name in this Paul McCartney thing, I was just like, that's what I, you know, when I was 15 years old buying CDs every Saturday, you'd look at all these names in the, in the, uh, in, on the records or in the CDs. And I just remember thinking, one day I'm going to get my name on an album or you know in those liner notes it's a phenomenal interview and you're going to hear it right now included in Flea's autobiography is a list of book recommendations that he advises the reader to check out and it contains loads of classic and weighty titles that have inspired his personal and impressive literary journey it followed the admission in the book that Flea had insecurities about not having a college education and I wondered if he was consciously making up for missing out and whether he'd felt the need to prove himself in that academic realm with his own book. Um, no, not really. I, I didn't like feel a need to prove myself academically. I really just tried to write as good as I could from what's me, from what is organically me. Um, and I'm only as smart as I am. I can't pretend to be any smarter. You know, nobody can. Um, or not successfully, anyways. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I just, I love books, but I'm also, I'm not, I've never studied writing, you know? So, I mean, beyond just, like, being a great appreciator of literature, because I've always read since I was a little kid. Yeah. So, uh, um, I didn't really feel the need to prove myself. I, and, and it's funny that you mentioned that, because one of the, the things, like, that was... Uh, a theme for me in the book, in my book, and in wanting to understand myself, was like, what is it that's driven me? What drives me? Like, why have I done? Why have I always done what I've done? Like, like say with the Chili Peppers, every time I step on stage with the Chili Peppers, I give every fucking thing I've got, like to the point where I collapse in exhaustion after the show, and I push myself to the point where, you know, it hurts me. 
but I do it because I feel like I have to. When I go on a stage, I have to give everything I've got. And and I and I think in a way like there's a reason for that, and it might not be the healthiest reason. Like, why am I driven? Is it because I want to prove to everybody, like, please love me, look at me, I'm 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 doing this, you know? Or is it because I really yearn, because I yearn to connect so much? Like, there's something inside of me that wants love so bad that I I feel like I have to like make this hard connection for the audience. Or is it because I just admire a beautiful piece of art and I know that it's my job to do everything I can to create it, like? And, and like trying to understand that about myself, like what is the engine that drives me? What is what is that thing? And in that yearning to understand that and why I want to like turn the pain of my life into art, um, that that's the thing that you know my that's a big theme of my book and wanting to understand that. So that you bring up that I needed to prove myself, you know, as some you know in the academic world, I don't know. Like honestly, if I'm going to really be honest. I don't really know, but I know I just wanted to write something as good as I could. Oh, uh, you, you, you're saying like you're trying to find out what drives you, but then uh, drive you to what is it that is driving you to do? When you, when at the start of the book, when you're talking about Ethiopia, you're saying that that experience there reaffirmed the truth of, of your purpose. What do you think your purpose is? What is your role as an artist? To connect, to be humane, to, in my understanding, that all are one. Um, and that we really are connected and that, you know, um, I remember once, uh, my friend Serge Kanky and the, the, the singer of System of a Down told me, he goes, you know, there's two kinds of people in this world. There's people that know that we're all connected and there's people that don't. And, and I, you know, that really struck home with me. And I think that like, as being someone who believes that we all are connected, my, my purpose in life has been to, to to work to, like, I'm always touched by that connection and by that, like, the feeling my purpose is to use art to make people feel less alone and to use love as a means to make people feel less alone because it's a lonely, cruel, harsh world. And when, when I feel people's pain being expressed in a beautiful way, it touches me in a visceral way. I feel... I feel moved. I feel shook. I feel um, I feel like I, I've been given a meaning, and that meaning has come from love and compassion, and from people used doing everything they can in order to 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 express their compassion through art, and um, ultimately, you know, through trying to make things that are beautiful, we we help other people to feel less alone. So I think that that's my purpose in this world. I told Flea that it was so heartwarming to read in his book about how he considered himself a freak, a social outcast when he was a kid, and when he first met Anthony at school that Anthony had encouraged Flea's freakiness, because it reminded me of being 11 years old and discovering the chilli peppers at a crucial point in my life, and then becoming a form of emotional support with songs like Freaky Styley that defiantly boasted, I'm freaky styley and I'm proud. Suddenly it felt okay to feel like a freak. And so I asked him, was that the message they were hoping to convey in their music? Yeah, I think so. Um, And not so much just being a freak, but of being who you are. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, 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 for some people, like, they, like, their true self is someone who likes muted colors. Someone who, like, their true self is they might really like numbers solving problems for other people. So maybe their greatest self is to be a really fucking good accountant. 
You know what I mean? And that's beautiful because that's who they are. You know what I mean? But, and, and I feel like, you know, it's like it's easy to say, oh, well, that's a boring person. No, maybe that person is really fucking beautiful and they're doing what they were born to do. So it's not like I hold being freaky or whatever, you know, freaky being like a very, you know, uh, subjective word, yeah. but as higher than above something else. But what we have always been about is being yourself and being like waving your flag of who you are as as high or as low as you want to wave it, but to be empowered to be yourself. And now we move into 2022 with Simon speaking to Anthony Kiedis. Simon, tell us a little bit about how this interview went, how you felt about it and what was spoken about. Uh, so this one was a little different in the circumstances in that um, I left Clash Magazine in 2020. Um, I left to set up my own uh, content agency. So I basically work with um, brands and artists who come up with artists, make content. So all the kind of skills I've learned over the years at Clash, so I, I take it to brands and, and do whatever they want to do. I, I book bands, create digital content, videos, photo shoots. And I also do uh, freelance writing. So I've written for other other titles and I have more time to do so now. So when I heard that the Chilies were coming back because obviously they announced that John was back in the band, from that point on I was like, oh man, I've got to, like, got to try and get the Chilies. How can I get the Chilies? I don't, you know, I'm not the editor of Clash anymore. Can I still get them? And then they changed publicists. Um, so I had a long-standing relationship with the, uh, the previous publicist, they changed publicists to a very, very good friend of mine. Um, so I was like, wow, great. I, I, I hopefully do have a chance. Um, but who can I get to write for? Like, who who can I pitch uh, pitch it to? But fortunately, um, my, um, my successor, uh, Robin at Clash, uh, great guy, he had pitched for a cover story, uh, unbeknownst to me. And then he emailed me, or he called me, I can't remember, and he was just like, you would never forgive me if we got this and I didn't offer it to you. So you're obviously, you can get first refusal. So it was like that whole thing of like, you know, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Uh, but I was like, yeah, yeah, of course I'll do it, man. I, of course I'll do it, it'd be a pleasure. Yeah, we, we set it up and this was obviously ahead of um, the uh, Unlimited Love. So I got sent the album, um, like a, a stream of the album. Ahead of time? Yeah, yeah. So I got mm. it like a good few weeks before the, before the interview. So that was before the um, actual release. And I, I can remember my wife was out that night and I'd put the kids to bed. So it got to about nine o'clock and I had the, sort of the, the, uh, the lounge to myself. And I turned off all the lights and I put on a good pair of headphones and I just sat lying down on the couch listening to this album and I just savoured it. And you know what? It was sounded incredible. And I was like making notes on my phone of just like all these different things. And I remember just like shooting up like 90 degrees when I heard These Are The Ways, like Chad's drumming on that, just going, oh my God, this song, like just the, the, the impact of the album. So I was so excited to like talk about it and, and just find out like you know this new iteration of the band this new new chapter as it were and, and talk about it like obviously at that point we had no idea that Return of the Dream Canteen was was on the horizon so it was this was it and this was the new album to talk about and uh yeah 
really excited to do it. So um, I got on the phone with Anthony and I think he was driving to rehearsals or he was on his way to rehearsals. And uh, yeah, we had a good old chat. The annoying thing is that I recorded the interview on uh, directly onto my laptop, perfectly recorded, you know, clean and crisp. But I backed it up with uh, my my, my uh, recorder on the side, and then literally about a month later, my laptop died and took everything that was on it with it. So I lost everything. So what you're about to hear is the backup version. So it's got that same annoying like signal interference on it but um so this was us chatting on, chatting on the phone um we talked about the return of john we talked about the chemistry we talked about the unlimited love sessions we talked about what he did during the pandemic and it was great it was great so we're going to go to the swan now for this one Absolutely wonderful interview from 2022, Unlimited Love Era. It was obvious that the sessions that bore Unlimited Love had been incredibly fruitful and prolific. And so I picked up on a quote from a previous interview in which Anthony had said that going into them, the Chili Peppers had felt ready for anything. Hoping to lead into the story of how John made his surprising return to replace his old friend Josh Klinghoffer, I asked Anthony what had happened in the preceding months that brought them together, feeling so restlessly creative and open for change and experimentation. What had happened? I mean, life had happened. Um, time had happened. Experience had happened. Um, I think our, our minds are always open for anything, you know, and, and whatever we've been doing is definitely been working in terms of longevity if nothing else i mean we, we have been known to roll with the punches good and bad you know gain and loss success and failure it, it's all part of that landscape called the red hot chili peppers and you know really what happened it was something weird in the air you know something uh, some sort of a psychic presence in the air you know a couple of years ago flea and i both looked at each other and kind of simultaneously said, you know, it would be nice to work with John again. As far-fetched as that seemed, as remote of a possibility as that seemed, the fact that we both had that, that same thought at the same time suggested that we might be onto something. And it turns out that John had been very much feeling similarly. And when we got together and, and had our talks and kind of see how that might feel it, it felt like uh, a lot of a lot of the old misgivings and damage had, had found a way to repair itself or heal to some degree and that in the end the the value of of creativity and, and making music together as a family outweighed um any of the differences that we might have you know personality wise because it turns out sometimes those peculiarities of your brethren are, are really what make them creative and special and interesting. And as fucked up as I might be or as fucked up as anyone else in this band might be, that's kind of what makes them special and it makes them, you know, pour the, the juice that they pour. So with that understanding, we just, we went and uh, we got into a, a, a music space together and we didn't try to go too fast. You know, we didn't try to pick up where we had left off. We tried to just start playing 
from a, a humble standpoint. And then, you know, before we knew it, we had we had more music and more songs than we knew what to do with. Yeah. I mean, you said you said it seemed to be fairly easy when you got back together, but I understand there must have been some kind of, apart from the stuff that worked itself out naturally, was was there amends to be made? Was there things that were spoken or things that were discussed or, you know, anything before everyone was there with open arms? Uh, you know, there was no specific incident, that, at least that I can recall at this moment. It, it was more like we can all be assholes. And we all have to find a way to be forgiving and accepting. Um, and it's also, it's, it's a tricky job, you know, uh, being in close quarters with so many personalities for so long in the recording studio, on the road. I mean, it's, it's a greater blessing than it is anything else, but it can also be that family dynamic where you're all under a roof together for too long and the idiosyncrasies and the the selfishness and, the, and all of this stuff can, can come to a boiling point, and it does. But like I said, you know, the, the value of what we do together as a band, um, we love it. Yeah. We, we absolutely love it, and, and I think we're very grateful for it and willing to find a way to adapt and... You know, if there are little amends to make, yeah, we'll make them. I'm not going to air that out publicly. Yeah. But, uh, you know, n none of us are afraid to admit when we're wrong. And, you know, that that's just uh, a <laughs> life, life in a rock and roll band. As we began to speak about the music on Unlimited Love, Anthony said that he likes it when his songs are open to interpretation and affect different people in different ways. I told him that I loved the lyrics of Not The One, in which he sings, You see me in a way that makes me want to reinvent a person I could turn into. I say it sounds like he's suggesting that he's not the person that other people think he is, and my interpretation was that there's a distinct difference between Anthony Kiedis, famous lead singer of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Anthony Kiedis, the doting father and private citizen. So, I asked him, is there a difference between those two people? Well, yeah, so that's, that's an example of a song that, that does come from a very personal place and, you know, is, is more, is a, a more honest exposing of, you know, some inner feelings. But I think the song speaks for that feeling better than I could speak for it. Um, I'd rather talk about it in a song than yeah. in a, an interview, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think people do have a, an idea of who they think you are or who you're supposed to be. And that, that isn't usually who you might be. And, um, I've, I've run into this along the way and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm glad that that song spoke to you. I'm glad that you heard what I was talking about. That's nice to know that, um, that 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 message was received yeah um, and we probably all we probably all have that like you know people get this idea of who they think you are but but maybe they should let go of the idea and just let you be who you are i mean yeah but especially in in your case you know you're clearly somebody that values their privacy and you're not on social media flaunting it i love that quote that you said about uh i wrote a book once and it was a big mistake i forgot that people were going to read it so there's clearly these intrusions that happen, and how how do you deal with those intrusions in your public life? Um, 
it, it's not difficult. You know, I've, I've, I've been extremely fortunate to, you know, have a, a successful, lengthy run as a songwriter and, and band member and, you know, being, being pretty well known but not being overly bombarded by the, the destruction of fame. Um, you know, so many people get, they get overly focused on being famous and then they end up, you know, living this life where they're not free. And I haven't had that experience. And I'm very, very thankful, you know, to have uh, all of the fun stuff that comes along with being in a successful band. But very little of the, oh, I can't go here, I can't go there, I can't do this. I pretty much can do anything, anywhere, anytime without too much of a hassle. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't think of myself as so special or so anything. I just, I like being a, a human amongst humans. This interview in 2022 with Anthony Kiedis, it was the first time that you had spoken to, to uh, Anthony about the, re the return of John the release, obviously, of Unlimited Love. It was an exciting time for us as fans, presumably for the band as well. And as an interviewer, this must have this must have felt like a special time to talk to Anthony. Yeah, definitely. But I think it's a case of like testing the waters um, and approach it in a way that allows him to say what he wants to say the way he wants to say it. So I don't think I outright asked him. You know, so what happened with John? Mm. I think it's a case of, you know, what was... I think I, I think I say something like, you know, what was happening at the band, with the band at that time? How were you feeling? And then he will say it. And then you pick up that thread and you, you know, sort of unwind it and see and see where it goes. But I feel like there's... Um, I feel like there's just that special chemistry between those guys and they know that that's... A winning formula and I just think they, they felt that pull there and I think that Anthony and Flea both naturally felt that pull of like I think it's time to explore this thing again it feels right it feels the right time so I think that's all there is to it you know um, I just I just posed that question to Anthony and just let him say what he wanted to say and, and he didn't as, as he didn't go into great detail unfortunately but you know they're not going to, are they? They're not going to open up about the ins and outs of what happened with Josh and how it went down. No, and and like I say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, you know, pushed for that. Uh, tried to, to, yeah, no, I wouldn't have done that. But I must say that uh, he, they, they were very, very nice about Josh in that interview. I think I printed it. I think it ran in the cover story. I think it's, uh, I had like one line or something, but in no way were they in any way negative about him. They were just so grateful for the two albums that they put out, mm. as well they should be, because they are things to be proud of. They are exceptional. And, and he is an exceptional person and musician. And obviously he's gone on to work with Pearl Jack. He's, he's gone on to do a lot of things since he left the Chilies. And um, I like to think that him leaving the Chilies has freed him up to explore those avenues, because he is so talented, and the, the depth of his abilities possibly couldn't have been fully explored if he was still in a band like the Chilies. He may have been able to, you know, release 
music with the band and, and explore different avenues. But it's great to see him blossoming in his own right. So, you know. Yeah, exactly. Go he deserves it. Go robot. <laughs> well, indeed. <laughs> so we must now move on. <laughs> okay. I'm sure you'll agree. Well, I. I, I just, uh, I'm having such a lovely time that I don't care whether yeah. we move on or not. No, but we, but we must. <laughs> but we must, okay. So, Simon, you're fortunate enough not only to interview the Swan, but also to interview Mickey B, the Fleabat Unlimited Love. So, yeah, this was the following night after I interviewed Anthony. I interviewed Anthony, um, and it was like early March, and I know that it was a Friday that I interviewed Flea, because Friday night in my house is pizza night, and I had to leave the kids to eat their pizza and miss all the crust action while I went upstairs and chatted to Flea. And um, if the Acid for Children interview was good, this one was even better. Like, this was a 20 out of 10 interview with Flea. It was on Zoom, so that was immediately better than... um, Well, the Anthony uh, interview the previous night was on the phone, so immediately you've got eye contact with someone. And that just changes the chemistry immediately, and that you can, you can see what someone's thinking. So, um, or, or you can see if people react to questions. You see if they don't want to talk about it, whatever. So, I'm sitting at my desk. I've got a can of beer. He uh, is sitting in like his home cinema. It just looks very comfortable and very like warm, and he's like super chill. Um, and I start off, and I remind him that I did the the. The, the, the book cover and I show him the, the clash with him on the front he's like oh yeah no I remember that so I reassured him that you know this isn't going to be an interview where I'm going to ask you silly questions you know this is hopefully going to be you know hopefully going to be a, a, an enjoyable experience for you and I said to him um, you know I'm a long time fan been a fan since like 1990 uh, and I showed him the shirt that I'm wearing I don't know if you can see it we can indeed but I got the shirt in uh so I, w- I was wearing this this exact T-shirt. So this was I got this in 1994, and it was painted by Clara. So it says um, "Red Hot Chili Peppers," and chili is spelled C H I L Y, and it's like this painting of a little kid. And I was like, "So yeah, so this is how long I've been a fan, you know?" And he went, "Holy shit! I was just talking about that shirt last night, because you know his wife Melody designed the." Uh, merchandise for the the tour you know the new range and stuff and he was like Clara was round for dinner last night and we were just I says I've not seen that shirt in 30 years or whatever and he was like hold on hold on can I can I like take this and show Melody and I'm sitting there going yeah sure so he takes whatever he was speaking to me on and uh, introduces me to Melody and she's like oh yeah can we take a screenshot so I'm standing up like showing this t-shirt so it was really funny because I'm sitting there going, that's cool. They're just like screenshotting my shirt and, and I've just reminded him of something they were talking about the day before. So this is what I'm saying, the difference between a phone interview and a Zoom interview, you're like having this human interaction that just felt like so natural. And um, we, uh, we then went and sat down and um, we started talking and uh, literally about two minutes later, he's like, oh, sorry, I need to go to the bathroom. So he goes off for a wee <laughs> and he comes back and he was like, oh, sorry, I'm such a, like, you know, I'm sorry, I'm just wasting your time, basically. And at that point he goes, listen, when the publicist comes back on and tells us that we've got to wrap up, I'll just tell him it's fine and we'll talk for as long as we need to talk for. So at that point I'm like, well, that's great because I've got like 2,000 questions, like, let's do this. 
And yeah, we just had an amazing conversation from that point. It was just like, I know what level he's on, he know what, what level I'm on, and we just have this just a great sort of connection of an interview and it's not like you know like you see these interviews where it's like junkets where it's like these actors come into a hotel room and an, an interviewer comes in and they get five minutes and the next person comes in and they're just so bored mm. like I'm so fortunate that I can do these cover interviews where they're uh, longer and you get time with them and you can develop a conversation and you can develop a relationship and I mean that was just um, oh man honestly that conversation was just so good I mean I I think I was on a cloud nine that weekend. Well, understandably. And he remembers the previous interview. He's definitely going to remember that one. I mean, I'd like to think so. I mean, I can't. I wouldn't know for sure, but um, I don't think they would necessarily remember the specifics. Um, you know, like if I was if I was to be lucky enough to, to talk to him again, mm. he wouldn't necessarily remember that chat. But I think once you get into conversation with something, someone, you sort of realise. Okay, this person knows what they're talking about. They feel a bit more comfortable. So, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you sort of like be so egotistical as to think that you definitely remembered me. But it was more just like, okay, you know, I'm gonna open up a little bit more. But um, this uh, interview was like, it was just this. I think with Anthony's interview, we talked about like how can sort of considered he is when he talks. But I think he's more qu- quite kind of. He talks about the creative process in quite a, almost like a casual way. Like he sort of talks about it, like reports mm. on it. I don't really know how to say it. Like he's he's very invested in it and passionate about it. But when you talk to Flea about it, he's so passionate about it and like the intricacies and the and the the the, the chemistry and this unspoken kind of thing that happens. Yeah. And so there's a difference in the way that they answer things. That's more. Um, you know, it's it's unique to both of them. So, with Flea, when you when you when you're fortunate to speak to him for that length of time, man, he he just opens up like this beautiful flower and talks at length. And all all I can do is just sit and listen and make sure I try and ask the right questions. We roll into this wonderful interview. I had just asked Flea about the dynamics in the group changing with John returning, and he was saying about how it was more powerful and exciting than ever. But I noted that there were reports that Flea wasn't too happy towards the end of Josh's time with the band, and I wanted to know if perhaps he'd unknowingly moved on mentally towards John because he felt that his heart wasn't really into it. This is how he responded. To be honest, no. I, you know, there's always, in life, there's always like portals and doors and things opening and energy changing, um... And I never really know what's going to happen. I know that when I started, you know, connecting with John again, and we had spoken about that we both felt a powerful yearning to play with one another and had a very, like, an emotional connection on that subject one evening, um, you know, like a year before he came back, I think. Yeah. Um, that, that felt beautiful, and it felt like that was a great possibility and, you know, after we had, we had written, you know, basically most of an album with jo- with Josh. And, you know, we were just, I don't know, it just didn't, it felt like the right thing to do was to move and go back to John. Yeah. You know, it's all I can say. It wasn't like my heart wasn't in it. Like my heart's always in it. Every time I play, my heart is in it. Yeah. But it's not always easy. Sometimes it's difficult. 
Um, and it just felt like it was, you know, it was just hard to get us all together, like working together. But it wasn't like my heart wasn't in it or ever like, oh, it's not working because we would have made it work. We would have done it. You know what I mean? But it's just like John came back. It just seemed like the right thing. So I can't say that I was ever like, oh, no, this isn't right. It's not working and, and I'm moving on. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just kind of what happened. It's always uh, a universe energy is always moving. And I just always feel like it's like you live life by trying to be the kind of person that's present and aware and conscious enough to follow your heart and follow the light as it guides you as life moves. Yeah. As opposed to like, you know, like a preconceived idea or something. I told Flea that John had previously spoken about his attempts to ignore his ego in the prolific sessions for unlimited love, to give himself up to chemistry and intuition, and as a result there was less creative competition. So I asked him, how does competition manifest itself in a group that clearly loves playing so much? Um, you know, it can rear its head in, in like, uh, you know, someone has an itch. When you create communally, it's a very, it can be a very vulnerable feeling, you know what I mean? Because we're always working together and there's parts where we're just kind of jamming and improvising together and we're like, ooh, that's great, you know, and there's like magic moments where something comes up and a song might be written in one minute, you know what I mean? Where we're just improvising and this thing starts flying out of us like we're just channeling this thing and oh it's a great song you know and many of uh, some of our best songs have come that way but there's a lot of it where like for you know you you like for myself like i'll be sitting at home and up all night playing something and thinking like, oh this is fucking great like i've got myself in a hypnotic trance playing this rhythm or this chord progression or whatever it is and, I, and I'll come in the morning, I'll be like, hey, guys, I got this, this thing, you know, I think you're going to like it, I think it's going to be a good song. And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Like, yeah, let's record it. Maybe we can use that, you know. It's yeah. all right. And, you know, and, and inside, I'd be like, oh, fuck, I yeah. wish they would see what I see in it, you know what I mean? And, and it can be kind of, you know what I mean? It's just a vulnerable feeling when you bring, it's like, you know, sharing your love and, and you sing with someone and not everyone always relates to it. Like, it does not then be the quality of it, but it just doesn't work in the group dynamic or what you see is not seen by the rest. And so, you know, you can get your feelings hurt. And so it can kind of be like the competitive, you know, it's not healthy, but it's like someone will bring something in, oh, you know, everyone likes it. And the other person's like, oh, fuck, I better bring in something good that they like. You know yeah, what I mean? Raises the stakes. Yeah, just sort of like that wanting to like, you know, wanting everyone to like your shit and wanting to... Um, connect so it can it can be kind of competitive like that you know like like well my idea is good too you know what i mean like um you know it's human nature yeah you know is it, is it but we're, we're pretty good like it was really like i feel like everyone's ideas were really honored and um and we're and you know it's great so is it very kind of um um democratic when you're playing or does there tend to be like a creative lead does somebody take the kind of the creative director role it's pretty democratic yeah you know i would say that like and we all at different times assume that position you know of like kind of taking the lead on a particular idea or whatever but it's not even that it's more just like someone might just see have a vision you know what i mean um and and, you know, the kind of the big one is really Anthony in the terms that it's not so much of, like, taking the lead. It's just that, like, 
me and John or us as a collective could come up with 10 musical tracks, right? Ideas that we yeah. think are good and we all pitch in on it and they become these tracks. But if Anthony doesn't sing on it, it's not going to be a song. Yeah, you got it. You know what I mean? So he's got to he's got to be excited to sing on something and come in with like, yeah, I've got this vocal idea for this song. And otherwise, you know, it's not going to happen. You know, there there are, are occasions where John has chords and he will uh, have a vocal melody that goes along with it. You know, and if and if that resonates with Anthony, then um, you know that's cool too. Um, but it really. You know, if Anthony doesn't sing on it, it ain't going to be a song unless yeah. it becomes an instrumental track, which is pretty fucking rare. The album title Unlimited Love is, of course, taken from the song She's a Lover. And I'd read that Anthony had to be convinced by Flea and the others that it was the right choice. So I had to ask Flea what made those two words stand out and represent what this collection of songs meant. I mean, I, I just like the way the words sound. Um, for me, it was the standout title. And like Anthony had a few different ideas and... Uh, I really, I thought Unlimited Love was the best idea. I, and I think the reason it resonates with me the most um, in a few different ways, and the most one that comes to mind first is that the record, this record, I feel like maybe more than any other record we've ever done. Um, and, and also, I guess I can't help but thinking about all the shit that we recorded too, that, you know, not just this album, but this album in particular. Yeah really covers a pretty wide range sonically and artistically and in terms of feelings of songs. I don't feel that the songs repeat themselves ever. Like each song is really has its own emotional and sonic uh, uh, experience. They're all really different dynamically. And and I that's the thing that I've always loved about our band and aspired to with our band is to not let genre or style get in the way of expression. Like, we can just go anywhere we want. It's unlimited. It's love. It's music. It's beautiful. It's all valid. It's all good. You know, never try to stick to a formula. Never try to do something that works. Or never try to do something that you think, oh, this is who we are. This is what we do. No, we do all of it. Yeah. You know, and 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 um, that, and, I like, for me, the thing that I value more than ever as I get older and as the world changes around me and as everything is going, it's just building bridges of love everywhere, man. Yeah. You know, um, all cultures, all different parts of society, um, love is what we need. And part of love is recognizing injustice and oppression and, um, you know, un injustice and unkindness wherever it is and I, I i believe that the way for us to move forward is through unlimited love and through building bridges amongst people that you wouldn't normally talk to and i, I even myself like sometimes people can say things and do things that i find absolutely fucking reprehensible and infuriatingly so but i know the answer is through building bridges of love and through bringing people together and uh that's how I try to live my life, and that's how I hope that um, our record can be, be that music can be a thing that can bring people together from all different places. And that's my most sincere hope and uh, the thing that I care about. Flea speaks on a uh, on an emotional level about it, love, about love, about creativity, about vulnerability. 
he is not afraid to be wide open. And and by that I mean he lets his guard down. He, he lets his guard down with you. He he talks about and he talks in such a an expressive way. Uh, and that's what I don't necessarily get with Anthony. I love Anthony. He's my of all of the band members, he was my hero first and foremost. But as I've grown older, listening to Flea talk, mm. it's just incredible. I can only imagine what it must be like to to. It must be uh, difficult to take in what he's saying and enjoy what he's saying in in the moment, whilst simultaneously, and I say that in, in an American mm. way because I am now American, trying to think of a, a sort of pertinent question to follow up with is that are you constantly working on two levels as an interview i guess you must be yeah no definitely like uh, actually <clears throat> the previous interview with flea the acid for the children one when the phone cut out like in the recording he comes back and he's like all right so where were we and i was just like i have got no idea because i was so like absorbed in what you were saying but at the same time you're thinking right got to listen for either like a cue for what I can say next or look at where I'm going so you do have one eye on what comes next and listening to what what's said but um yeah you kind of need to know where you're yes. going because if you do get lost that's the point where the sort of conversation conversation stops and you look at your notes and you go right where was I and then that kind of breaks up the flow of a of conversation so you kind of have to be thinking one step ahead yeah at the end of the interview sort of you know the sort of polite way that you exit a conversation I said that you know I was looking forward to seeing them because this was ahead of the um, London Stadium gig and I said yeah I can't wait to see you when you come to London and he was like well you know please come and say hello so as it turned out at the very start of our conversation I told you that when I got into the Chili Peppers it was through this guy David Kenneser we'd uh, we hadn't spoken to each other or seen each other properly Last time I saw him properly was in 1999 when we came down to London to see the Chili's at Wembley. That was the last time I spent any time with him, really. And we'd got back in touch over, really started talking like through the pandemic, chatting on WhatsApp and we reconnected. And so I was like, come down to the London gig, stay at my place, we'll go to the gig. So um, yeah, basically hadn't seen him for a proper time in like 24 years. Um, we go to both nights at the London Stadium gig. The first night in the pit, absolutely off our faces, jumping around like we're 15 again. Second night, feeling very hungover and broken in the uh, in the stands. And then the next day, the Monday, we decided to go like into town. And I said, look, I, th I think I know where the Chili's normally stay. Like, why don't we go down and we could hang out and maybe we might bump into the band, you know. If there's any, like, fans outside, autograph hunters, then they've not come out and there's a chance we'll see them. We get down there. As we approach the hotel, Flea is standing outside the front door. So I was like, oh, my God, like, let's go and, let's go and chat to him. So he had just signed something for somebody and he was walking away and I shouted, Flea, he was with his wife. And he sort of turned around and you could just tell that he just wanted to like carry on with his day. And I just sort of said, oh, just sorry, just don't mean to want to get in your way. But um, I don't know if you remember me, I'm Simon. We spoke and he was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So he comes over and he's like talking to me. And he was like, oh, were you at the show last night? And I was like, yeah, I was there for both nights. It was great. And um, 
got to meet Melody and said hi to her. And then he signed uh, this mother's milk and his blood sugar vinyl. So now I've got Flea's autograph on them. But the best thing was I got to say to Flea, this is my friend David. He was the one that introduced me to the Chili Peppers in 1990. And now I would like to introduce you to David. And this beautiful full circle moment happened where I got to introduce Dave to Flea. And it was like, that's wonderful, man. You know, and the same thing happened. We just went home, just looking at each other going, oh, I can't believe we got to meet Flea, man. That was great. And um, just what a beautiful moment, man. Life coming full circle and, and getting to do something like that for a friend that I love, you know. But it's like the circle of life. If the Lion King taught us anything. <laughs> well, exactly. It's that these things come around. Hakuna Matata. Hakuna Matata. <laughs> Ain't no passing craze. <laughs> it means no worries Go for the rest, rest of your, your days. days. It's our problem-free philosophy. Hakuna Matata. Hakuna Matata. Hakuna. Hakuna. And on that Matata. note, we Hakuna. must now... Hakuna. End this episode by going to the socials. And I will say, if you want to be part of this madness, but this wasn't so mad, this was wonderfully educational. Just so great to speak to someone like Simon Harper. BenTanzoMusic.net is where this is hosted. Shut it. At University RHCP, Twitter, Insta, University Speaking RHCP underscore pod. I am at Stack Townsend. On Twitter. Mm-hmm. More importantly, Simon, how can people get in touch with you and learn more about your wonderful life? <laughs> on Twitter, I am at Simon underscore underscore Harper. And on Instagram, I am Mr. Simon Harper. M.R. Simon Harper. We will say, Mr. Simon Harper, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about your experiences with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. It has been a pleasure. I always come into these, you know, you just never know, do you? <laughs> I, I come into talking to Ben, not knowing, feeling a bit nervous, not knowing what's going to happen. Simon, talking to you tonight, it's just been inc- wonderful. I, I, I cannot, I cannot yeah. put it into words. You're a wonderful raconteur, a wonderful man. Thank you for giving us this beautiful episode. Oh, thanks, man. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I do consider myself very lucky. You know, I get to I get to um, have these wonderful experiences, and I have worked hard. And bringing it right up to date, I did get to interview um, John's wife, Marcia, uh, aka uh, Aura T O Nine, who uh, was their creative director, and spoke to her about the artwork for Return of the Dream Canteen, and also the two French illustrators who drew it. So I did that for a creative review magazine. So that's also like a really nice interview and actually talks about the uh, the uh, concept behind the artwork. So that was really cool as well. So that brings us right up to date. And hopefully, fingers crossed, our paths may cross again. What? Us or the chili? <laughs> Both. <laughs> I'll come back anytime you want me. I'll just get some more beers. We'll make sure the tech, uh, technical stuff works and we'll make it happen. Well, you're only in London, aren't you? You can come down to the garage. It's only a couple of hours. Anytime. The... I'll be there. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much, Mr. Simon Harper. It's been a privilege. I'm sure that you were down. Still never see.
Station.